Summer driving is here, and so are the red-hot deals on the best tire brands at Dobbs. Money saver June deals on new sets of Goodyear, Cooper, Continental, Michelin, and Pirelli tires. Click on GoToDobbs.com to find your next set of tires today. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. their feet here at Bush Stadium, trying to get him through the eighth inning. Pitch number 115 to match his career high. Swing and a miss! He's three away! Arcano is at the on-deck circle. Left side, one away! 3-2 pitch, and a fly ball into right field. Carlson is there! He's one away from history! All the training, all the work for this right here. The 2-2 pitch. Fly ball into center. Bader going back, 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 over his head. It's a clean hit. It's a ground rule double. And Cal Mitchell breaks up the no-hitter as the Pirates were down to their final strike. It's truly well, man. Did a really nice job. Bader didn't catch that ball. There's no one in this league that could catch it. So if you're going to go down, that's how you want to go now. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. That audio courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest. I have never been so disappointed by the final strike or what should have been the final out of a nine to one Cardinals win. You know, the first thing I thought of last night, man. How upset we would have been in 2011 if that uh, final strike (laughs) actually was a strikeout and not a hit. Oh, did that one hurt? (laughs) That stung. We got through about five innings, and it was the first time that I really noticed, oh, Michaelis is doing the thing. So I sent the text to you and Tanner, Alex, like a, last like a night. huge ass. You sent the text out and tried to ruin it. I was like, hey, did you guys see what Miles Michaelis is up to? Because I wasn't sure. Maybe you were, you know, hanging out with your little one. I, I didn't know what Tanner was up to. Probably drinking some seltzers no. down in Austin, Texas or something. The back of the station wagon getting to their next to destination. <laughs> I didn't know what everybody was up to, but Miles Michaelis was doing that thing where he allows base runners, but not via the hit. So I sent that text to you guys, and it felt like the pitch count was getting up there a little bit, but it was worth monitoring. What was he at at five innings? It was like around the 60, 70, something like that. It wasn't anything crazy, but it was like, all right, he's going to have a shot. He's going to at least have an opportunity here. And then we started getting closer and closer to it becoming a reality. And Alex, I got to be honest with you. The no-hitter has lost its luster to me for the most part when I watch it across Major League Baseball. I just don't have the connection to it the way that I once did. I was so unbelievably invested last night. Yeah. I don't know what it was. There was something about that was gripping for me. 
and the way Danny Mac was calling it, he's going to join us coming up in about 10 minutes to talk about what last night was like from his perspective in the booth with BT. I thought they were both tremendous calling that game. I was all in. And I have felt, I I can't remember the last time baseball-wise in a regular season mid-June game that really means nothing against a terrible opponent when the game was already decided early on. And the no-hitter wouldn't have counted because it would have been against the it Pirates. situation. Oh, it's okay, different. good. It's the Cardinals that did it. <laughs> I can't believe I was that emotionally invested yeah. in that game. Oh, that hurt. Yeah, so, so I, I was doing yard work and probably around the sixth inning because you had sent the text and I'm like, okay, I'll monitor. I'm listening to it. But around the sixth inning, I stopped everything that I was doing. And I told my wife, I said, man, this hasn't been done since the eighties for the Cardinals. Like this is historic. And so in in St. Louis, in St. Louis. Yes. And I told her, I was like, I got to watch this. And I was, I mean, I was as excited as you can get for a June Cardinals game up until that hit. And when Cal Mitchell hit that, it felt like somebody punched me in my gut. Yeah. Like I, I turned the phone off and I just didn't speak for 10 minutes and I didn't think it was going to bother me that much, but like to be that close to something that hasn't happened in St. Louis for that long and for it to be miles Michaelis, I thought that was the other really cool aspect of all of this. There have been more than 60 no hitters since the last time that the Cardinals had one, which seems impossible given how, how many quality starters how many quality teams the Cardinals have had over the last 20 years for there to be 60 around the league. Basically every other team had an average of two while the Cardinals had zero. And of course we've seen it get close before with Michael Waka almost 10 years ago now getting close to it. And then last night I I thought he was going to do it. I really did. I thought it was over. And when that ball came off of the bat and it's going into center field, I think we take for granted how excellent Harrison Bader is because I just assumed he was going to catch it. I just, I thought that was a catch coming off of the bat. Well, and and I'm so glad. And I heard Wayno say this with Carriker and Smallman this morning. I'm glad it went over his head because I think he played it the right way. And Wayno said this, like you don't, you don't let a bloop single end a no hitter. Like if that would have dropped in between the shortstop and Harrison Bader, I think St. Louis would be livid right now. The fact that it went over Harrison Bader's head and Marmol said it best. If he's not catching that ball, nobody in major league baseball is with the speed that Bader possesses. So if there was one way for it to end, that would be the way I'd want it to, because it's not a home run where you're like, ah, miles messed up, or it's not a bloop that defensively they didn't play it correctly. It went over Bader's head and nobody else is making that play. 101 miles per hour off of the bat. According to StatCast, there was a 20% chance that that was caught. Mark Simon, who works for Sports Info Solutions, which is one of those fancy numbers sites, he said, if Bader's not catching that ball, I don't think there's a single center fielder in all of baseball that was going to be able to make that play. So while StatCast said it was 20%, I, I don't know how much they take into account the positioning on that play or if it's more just the batted ball data that they're taking into account. But Bader was shading towards left. He was playing in. It's going to his left where it's a really tough play over his head. There's just sometimes nothing you can do. And and man, he made it close. Yeah. I mean, it was it was right there. That leap. I thought that that leap. I, I mean, it looked like within inches of his glove. That leap. I thought Bader had it. But again, I don't want the ball to drop in front of totally Bader. with you. I think they played it right. Yeah, I think it was the right call to play play a little bit in because as you mentioned, Wayno mentioned it earlier. I know Michaelis was talking about it last night after the game as well. If you end up losing that no-hitter 
with a little bloop to oh, center. It would have hurt that so much That is so more. much worse. Yeah. That is so much worse than what ended up happening. They earned it. It was a really good pitch. It was down and away. He went to go get it, and, and it goes into center field. He hits it really hard, and that's the way that it ends. But, man, so much credit to Miles Michaelis. He was awesome last night. The other thing that I just find ironic about all of this is that you've had – been what 40 years since we've seen a no hitter in st louis 20 years since we've seen one by a cardinal and it almost happened on a night where nolan arenado's not in the field (laughs) you've got nolan gorman playing at second base and we'll talk about his defense later on today he was tremendous at second last night full kudos to him juan yepes is in left field like for that to be the defensive construction oh by the way it's not even yadier molina that's calling the game behind the plate it's andrew kisner no he was panicking behind home plate (laughs) For that to be or in the, dugout, the I way say. that everything was constructed last night, I think added just a little bit more emotion for me where it's like, this is just so, it, it's almost unbelievable mm-hmm. that this is when it happens. And with that guy being on the mound, coming off of all the injuries, it was it was almost a, a really cool story. That, that's, that's what for me, and I'm excited to talk to Danny Mack about that in just a bit. But for me, if it's not Adam Wainwright throwing the no-hitter, I would have preferred it to be Miles Michaelis because you talk about a guy who has grinded it out throughout his entire career where he was with San Diego, he was with Texas and couldn't find a home and then had to go play in Japan for five years and then comes to St. Louis, is in the Cy Young running in that first year and then deals with injuries and to come back and pitch, it's not just that game. It's this entire season for Miles Michaelis. And then to get that, man, that would have been such a a cherry on top of the Sunday for a guy like Miles Michaelis. The other thing that I wanted to make sure that we gave credit to, because there's so much credit to go around, right? It's it's Nolan Gorman for his defensive plays all night long. Uh, it's it's the team for getting out to an early lead, which allowed them to have a longer leash with Miles Michaelis all night. All of that is part of this, but also, how about the manager? There are so many managers across baseball, and this is one of the things that we've talked about with Ollie is, Yes, he's going to incorporate some of these new school ideas, right? The load management. Yesterday, I think there were only two guys that started in the field in both games for the Cardinals. There's a reason why he did that. It's because they believe there's diminishing returns over time. Paul Goldschmidt gets the DH early on in that one. And then last night, uh, you end up having Nolan uh, Arenado with the night off. That's not what you would typically want. You want those guys out there every day. But the Cardinals believe that with rest, those guys will be better later on into the season. So Ali Marmol will incorporate that stuff. He's going to play by the numbers. He's going to play the matchups, all of these different things. And also, when you got a pitcher that's going for history like he did last night, and he's already at his career high in pitch count going into the ninth inning, and he finishes with 129 pitches, only five starters have done that since 2015. You had a, you had a manager that trusted a guy to go out there and get it done. He had nobody up in the bullpen. There was never a thought to take him out of that game. I got to give Ollie Marmel a lot of credit for allowing Miles Michaelis to try to chase history. Yeah, I, I that that's for me what I appreciated the most out of the whole thing. There was nobody warming up in that bullpen. Ollie base and granted it's a nine one nine two ball game. Like there's no concern of losing that game if Miles Michaelis gives up a hit and it's a home run or something like that. But he didn't put anybody in the bullpen thinking that well he's at 120 pitches. If he gives up the hit, we want to get him out of there right away. 
No, they were like, this is you, Miles. We have full faith that you can pull this off. And if you don't, well, then we'll take care of the rest of the game. And that was the other thing, the long conversation that they had on the mound when they took Miles out of the game. And I was listening to Ollie on my my way in this morning, and he said the full conversation at the mound was Miles telling Ollie, thank you for allowing me to chase that. And that's where... We've talked about this before. That's where you get that bond in a clubhouse in a long season where the players trust their manager and the manager trusts their players and you get that cohesion for a successful season. But when your pitcher who's trying to chase something that he's never been able to do before and he knows his manager had full faith in him, that's another feather in the cap for Ali Marmol. This is what, when we talked to Buster Olney, he mentioned the comparisons that he would make for Ali Marmol is twofold. It's Kevin Cash with the Tampa Bay Rays because of the creativity that he has with some of his matchups, his platoons, and then also what he does with his, his bullpen management style. But then he also mentioned Alex Cora as a, a comparison for the way that Ollie Marmel manages. And the reason why he brought up Cora is because there's just this vibe in the clubhouse when Cora is the manager where it, he's he's got everybody feeling good. They're all very confident and he instills that in them. And that's the similarity between Cora and Ollie Marmel. And that's part of it. What you're talking about there with Marmel giving a little bit of a leash here to Miles Michaelis say, hey, go chase this 129 pitches. I don't care. We're going to allow you to have the opportunity to do something that is really special, really unique of all of the starts that he's made in his major league career. That's going to be one that he almost will. Well, he still will for the wrong reasons, unfortunately, (laughs) but he would have remembered that night for the rest of his life. Yeah. And it's a mid-June start against one of the worst teams in baseball. He said that in the locker room last night on the Bally Sports and West Post game. He's like, uh, I'm going to remember this one for the rest of my life. And he's like, not in a good way. To think that like that's always going to be in the back of your mind. Oh, that's got to sting. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. You can always get involved via the Rhino Shield mic drop feature as well from the 314. Hey, BK, you know Tony did the same stuff. Ollie's not any different than what Tony did. Quit talking him up. If you think that Ollie Marmel is in the same conversation as Tony LaRusa, that is a good thing. (laughs) That is, if you're saying that I'm talking up Ollie in a way that makes him sound like he is Tony LaRusa, that's awesome. Tony was one of the best managers to ever do it. So yeah, that's, that's why I'm talking him up because you have a manager right now that's giving you an advantage in terms of the tactics of the game. And also he seems to be pretty darn good with the clubhouse as well. Those are the two big jobs, two primary jobs of a manager. Ollie's doing both of them right now. And last night, it almost led to a guy having a historic night. Danny Mack was on the call for what almost amounted to history at Bush Stadium last night. What was that like for him? What's he going to remember from last night? We'll talk to Dan about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. All the training, all the work for this right here. The 2-2 pitch. Fly ball into center. Bader going back, 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 over his head. It's a clean hit. It's a ground rule double. And Cal Mitchell breaks up the no-hitter as the Pirates were down to their final strike. 
That's what it sounded like last night on Bally Sports Midwest with Danny Mac and Brad Thompson on the call. They were outstanding as they took us through what was one strike away from being the first no-hitter in St. Louis in about 40 years. Danny Mac joins us now via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to break down what he saw from the broadcast booth last night. Dan, first of all, tremendous call last night. Thanks so much for the time this morning. How you doing, man? And what was that like for you from the broadcast booth? Oh, man, that's the first time I've heard that. It's gut-wrenching. Um, it was a great game. The defense was really good for the better part of the game. Um, and I found it interesting that you had Yepes in left and you got Nolan Gorman at second. There's no Nolan Arnato. Yachty isn't behind the plate. And yet you had a chance at history. And uh, it was such an entertaining game. And the thing I was thinking about a lot was the fact it was almost like yeah, you've seen Kevin Costner and, you know, for love of the game, <laughs> you know, I was thinking like Michael is going through that where, I mean, think about where he's been, where his career was at a crossroads. He's obviously got talent. Uh, it's not working here in the big leagues. He's got to go to Japan to figure some things out. He comes back stateside. He's got connections to the Cardinals. He comes here. He has an unbelievable first year parlays that into a big deal that'll take care of he and, and his family for the rest of his life. And, and here's a, a night and a moment and a game that he'll never forget. And he comes up one pitch short, one strike short. So those are my, uh, my thoughts from the game. It was, it was highly entertaining though, to say the least. It was entertaining, Dan. And I mean, we know how gut wrenching that has to be for miles Michaelis and for those guys in the dugout, but you personally, as a fan, I mean, you've called so much Cardinals baseball. What was that like for you? Because if I'm not mistaken, you have not called a no hitter, correct? No, I have. You have. I've, I've okay. Called, yeah. I've called multiple no hitters. Um, not, so I've, I called the Bud Smith no hitter on radio with Mike Shannon uh, in San Diego on that fateful night, which was, I, I think every no hitter, even though they seem to be more commonplace now, um, has such a unique story. And in, in Bud Smith's case, it was, uh, you know, he's 130 plus pitches and it was gut wrenching for Tony and for Dave Duncan at that time, uh, to keep him in the game because, you know, Dave later told me, he's like, man, I was hoping he would give up a hit so we can get him out of there. I don't want him to get hurt. And then I called the Johan Santana no-hitter yeah. against the Cardinals. And I remember talking to Terry Collins at spring training the following year, and I said, was that the most difficult? And before he could even say it, I, I could get it out of my mouth. He said, yes, it was the most difficult game I ever managed in my life. And he said, in the background of that, was that Santana had had arm issues and shoulder issues, and they were being extremely cautious with him. But here's a guy that may never get this shot again, and he was going to let him do it like Ollie did last night. And I remember Terry Collins, he had tears in his eyes in the ninth inning before the no-hitter had even been completed uh, to see this historic milestone and what it means for an individual. It is life-changing for the individual. You are one of a select few that's ever made it to Major League Baseball and then one of the very select few that's ever thrown a no-hitter. So... Last night, that's what kind of was going through my mind, and uh, they're fun to call, man. I can tell you that. I, I love the moment. I love the big moment, and uh, it's great. I, I just uh, I wish he would have gotten that final out. It would have been uh, awesome to see. Dan, did you think Bader was going to catch it? <laughs> I did. I, I did. Now, I did note in the ninth inning that they were playing in. The outfield was playing in, and in the no-hitters I've called and seen, 
the outfield, generally speaking, will come in. They're going to cheat in. They don't want anything to fall in front of them. And if you're going to get beat, you get beat over your head. And if he's not going to catch it, like others have said, then probably nobody else is. I thought he had a pretty good jump on it, great effort. It's just one of those balls that, uh, you know, doesn't find a glove and you move on to the next one. We're talking to Danny Mack for another few minutes here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Dan, big picture wise, the Cardinals now have won five of their last six games. The only loss was that seven to six loss against uh, Cincinnati. They're taking care of these bad teams that are on their schedule right now. And over the last few, it's been the offense that has really been the storyline and specifically Paul Goldschmidt. We talked to you, I think it was last week, and you said you're not sure you've seen somebody hit like this or get this hot in maybe ever, especially with the month that he just had. He just keeps doing it, Dan. What the heck am I supposed to make of what we're watching right now from Paul Goldschmidt? It's the best I think he's ever played in his career. I I would assume he would agree with that. I bet if you asked him his numbers, he would have no clue at what they are, and I'm serious about that. Some guys say, no, I don't look at it. And you're like, yeah, whatever. But this guy, I don't, I don't think he does. I, I think he's an ultimate team player. He's not a me player. Um, and what do I make of it? I, I make of it is ride him out as far as you can, because right now he is the MVP of of the National League. And in terms of the big picture of the Cardinals, I would say taking two or three against Cincinnati was was good, really good, because they had three very good pitchers. And looking at Cincinnati, what did they start, BK? Was it 3-19? and mm-hmm. I think it was, they're four or five games above 500 since that time. And it's in direct correlation with pitching. You know, it's Ashcraft, it's, it's Hunter Green, it's Luis Castillo, and you're able to take two out of three. So that's, that's a good series win, even though on paper people will say, well, it's just the Reds. And I understand that. It's not a good lineup. Defensively, they've got their issues. But pitching-wise, those three guys are legit. Um, so that's a good thing. And now that you got clarity coming back tonight, you're getting healthier in your rotation. Um, and you're taking care of business against the lesser teams, which you're supposed to do. Uh, I, I just think it's the, that if they can stay healthy, it should be their division to win. I felt that going in and I feel that way now. Dan, you mentioned, um, what are realistic expectations for Jack Flaherty's return? Well, tonight I would say, you know, the idea was to get him to 90 pitches one way or another in a rehab start. And tonight I think it'd be more of the eye test because you're in a major league game and he's going to be more amped up in this game than if he was pitching down in Memphis. So you got to be careful with him. But expectations would be if he's right, you know, four or five innings, maybe six, back him up with Palante. And, and then if you're the Cardinals, you're thinking, let's get a sweep. Let's get greedy. What does this mean for the bullpen to be able to have Jack Flaherty back into the rotation, Dan? I think that's the big question I want to ask Ollie is, and I think specifically is what does it mean for Andre Pallante or Zach Thompson? You know, do those guys, which one of those guys goes back down to the bullpen and, and allows you then to, to get more length out of others that are not the big three Gallegos, Helsley and Cabrera. You've got to have somebody else step up and whether it's Drew Verhagen or it's Palante. Palante's done it. I, I think that's the spot maybe they go to. But Palante's been really good in the rotation. I, I just don't know where they go in that in that regard. I could make a case for both Thompson and Palante to stay in a rotation. But somebody outside of those three, the big three, has got to step up. So what it means for the bullpen is that it, it's someone um, you know that's not the big three that will get an opportunity to pitch in many, meaningful games, meaningful innings. And so that's uh, that's something that I look forward to seeing here in the next week or two. Dan, final question that I've got for you. We'll get you out of here on this one. 
Nolan Gorman, couple of plays defensively yesterday at second base. The base running play, which you had a great call on. You mentioned during the play that they practice this. This is something that they do regularly. And so they were ready for that exact situation. But for Nolan Gorman to be the one that ended up executing it, not just trying it, but executing it. Uh, those are two things that I wasn't sure, honestly, we were going to see from him. I knew he had the big bat, but to make a couple of plays defensively like that and a, a close to no hitter and then the base running play. What does that say about Gorman, where he's at at this point in his development in his big league career? Well, I'd say he's paying attention and uh, that's number one. And there's a lot of things I could say about this, but, you know, look at what he's done in his short big league career. You know, he goes to Pittsburgh, goes 5 for 10, has a couple of doubles, comes home, starts 0 for 11, and they say, hey, man, they're, they're getting you out, fastball up and in. you got to get that foot down. Don't do the toe tap. So he stopped. He spread out and starts hitting bombs. I mean, that's impressive for a young player, any player at the major league level, to do that. Um, Gorman was the one, I believe, that was running at Wrigley Field where they tried that play that you're referring to with the base running uh, yesterday. And so when we got on the plane to go to Tampa, I said to Ali, I go, was he hurt? Is he trying not to slide? You know, is something going on? Hamstring, knee? What? He's like, no, no, no. That's a play we work on. And then he told me about four or five others, and I'm not going to say them publicly in case somebody uh, would be sitting there listening and, and saying, oh, be, be aware of this. But he went over four or five other things. He said, hey, watch out for this. We may try this. We may try that. It's a fascinating play, and it's a smart play because he gets there, you beat the tag or you beat the force and then the run scores. So you, you basically in that regard, cash in the out for the the run. It's, it's a hell of a play. And then defensively the backhanded play, he made a diving play to his left to take away a hit. Good play, but the backhanded play to his right going up the middle was tremendous. I really liked him BK defensively. What I saw at third base a couple of years ago, saw him a bunch in spring training I thought he was really good. He's got a good arm, and I think that's one of the things that allows him to make that kind of play. If you have that kind of arm, uh, it might make up for some of the deficiencies you have range-wise. And then as it pertains to a no-hitter, you're going to look back on certain no-hitters, and I bet every one of these guys that's thrown one can say, oh, that was the play. That surprised me, or this happened, and I got a little lucky. That was the play that you would have looked back at this morning that we'd be talking about saying, that saved the no-hitter. So, He's been really good, and I think he's done a really good job. It's uh, it's interesting with DeYoung, the way that he's hitting down in the minor leagues. How does that complicate the immediate future of Nolan Gorman or somebody else? But uh, time will tell. But you know what? So far, so good. And I think we always have to remind ourselves, he just turned 22. i got to remind myself, Dylan Carlson, I believe, just turned 23. You know, it's a young group of kids, so they're learning on the fly here at the major league level. You don't see guys... It was one of the things I was going to talk about on the game tonight. You don't see guys getting 1,000 at-bats or 1,500 at-bats anymore in the minor leagues. It, it just doesn't happen. They're pushed, and they're put in uncomfortable spots on the biggest stage, and so far, so good with Nolan Gorman. It's been impressive. Dan, we appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy the game tonight. Hopefully the Cardinals are able to get this sweep, and we'll talk with you again next week. Love doing it. We'll uh, talk to you guys next week. Thanks yes. for having me. Absolutely. That's Danny Mack joining us here on 101 ESPN. Tremendous call last night uh, in what was one strike away from being a no-hitter for Miles Michaelis. I, I find it really interesting, man. He, he talked about some of the young guys and what they're able to contribute so far. 
Nolan Gorman was impressive. We've talked about his defense. We'll continue doing that coming up in the uh, one o'clock hour as well. The other guy that has really impressed me with his defense, especially at third, is Brendan Donovan. I've said that Brendan Donovan is basically an average defender anywhere you put him. I think he's a significantly above average defender at third base. I think that's his best spot defensively. And the the unfortunate thing for, for him and for the Cardinals, honestly, is that for Gorman, his best spot is third. For Donovan, his best spot is third. And oh, by the way, the Cardinals might have the best defensive third baseman in the history of baseball currently as they're starting third baseman. That's a great thing to have when <laughs> you got a guy who, who can play everywhere with that. And we've seen the arm of a Brendan Donovan from the outfield. If you need him in a corner outfield spot, I mean, as much as Ben Zobrist has been linked to Tommy Edmond, I think you could do the exact same thing with a Brendan Donovan. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get into some questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Coming up next, are the Lightning the closest thing that we currently have to a dynasty in pro sports in America? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So the Tampa Bay Lightning begin their quest to win their third straight Stanley Cup tonight. And Pat Maroon, of course, looking for his fourth straight Stanley Cup with a win in this series against the Colorado Avalanche. With Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We'll get to some of your questions for questions and answers coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. Alex, I, I read something earlier today over on ESPN.com about how If the Lightning lose this series, they're already a dynasty. It doesn't much matter. I don't know if I agree with that assessment. I do think they might need to win this, but then it would take doing something next year. We could talk about that on the other side. But are the Tampa Bay Lightning, if they do win this series, let's just get rid of the assumption that they lose. If they win this series, are they the closest thing we have to a dynasty in current professional American sports? I think they have to be considered so. I mean, I guess a lot of this depends on how you define a dynasty because a lot of people will say no way. But when you look at teams that are considered a dynasty, you think of the Patriots, you think of the Spurs, you think of the Lakers and the Golden State Warriors, obviously, on the run that they went on. And all of those signify championships in back-to-back years, winning two and three or three and four. I think if Tampa Bay wins this one then they have to be considered a dynasty and I think it it does ride heavily on them winning this one because I don't agree with this sentiment but there will be naysayers that look at the first Stanley Cup won by Tampa Bay that was in the bubble and say yeah well that one wasn't real I don't agree with that I still think it's one of the hardest trophies to win regardless if you're playing in a bubble or if you're playing in a shortened season or an 82 game schedule but I do think a lot rides on this one for them to be in that dynasty category. I'm with you, Alex. And honestly, I think that first one that they won, that might be one of the more difficult championships to win in the NHL that have happened over the years because you you have such a weird season. I, I think, honestly, we saw what happened to the Blues in that playoff run. It was very difficult for them to get things going. Tampa Bay picked up right where they left off and ended up obviously winning the Cup that season. I thought that year was probably the most difficult to win in recent years. Uh, I think you got to regard Tampa Bay as a dynasty, especially if they win this Stanley Cup right now. 
it's such a tough thing to do going, what is it now? Uh, 11 consecutive series wins. That That's such a hard thing to do in the NHL. And they fought through the injuries as well. Braden Point was just out for the conference finals. And it, it's just, it's so impressive what they've done. And the crazy thing is that we were talking about before the show today was that this is something they can continue to do even going into next season as well. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. From the 6 through 6, BK, even if the Lightning were to lose, they would still be a dynasty. Otherwise, we wouldn't consider the Patriots to be the dynasty. The Lightning have won three straight. They, they haven't done that, but the, the Lightning have won two straight already. They've been to three straight. See, this is where I'm not sure I agree. I think you've got to get three in a four-year stretch, and you have to have the back-to-back in there somewhere. Like, do we think that the the San Francisco Giants were a dynasty in the early 2010s? Because they won in 2010, they won in 2012, they won in 2014. When they went to the playoffs, they won the whole thing three consecutive times, but it was over a five-year stretch, and they never won it back-to-back. I don't. I don't consider that to be a dynasty. I think it's an unbelievable run to one of the, if you're looking back at the 2010s, they are arguably the team of the decade based on the three titles that they were able to win. But I don't think that that is viewed as a dynasty. I do think that the back-to-back is huge for the Lightning, that they've already got that underneath their belt. But to be considered a dynasty, I think they either have to win it this year or they have to get back again next year if they lose this year and win it again there. That would qualify you. That is what the Patriots did in the early 2000s. That's how they became that dynasty. Yeah, well, and I think when you you label a dynasty, at least in hockey, because in my opinion, because somebody already texted in and said um, the Golden State Warriors would be considered the uh, closest thing to a dynasty in this time frame. And I disagree with that. I they think didn't, they, I think they were a dynasty from 2015 to 2018. I almost view this as like a separate part of it. That's more like what we saw from the Spurs in the early 2000s. But if you're going to compare, and I know this is, this is like the Jordan versus LeBron James, the GOAT conversation, like you can't have these, but... I personally think it's a lot harder to win a Stanley Cup than it is an NBA championship because when you're going through four rounds of seven games in that grueling environment, it's a little difficult to handle with that. But I mean, I, it's the same thing in the NBA. It's more physical in, in hockey, I understand, but they also have to win seven game series. Rightfully so, but they're not taking a rubber puck to the face. I'm with you. No disagreement there. I'm just clarifying that it is a seven game series. I, I just <laughs> I, I think when you when you look at hockey with the dynasty. It, a lot of it just comes down to, regardless if you're winning three of them in a row, you look at dynasties of the past. The, the teams that are considered dynasties, no argument, the New York Islanders, the Montreal Canadiens, the Edmonton Oilers, the Detroit Red Wings. And what did all of those teams do? They pretty much dominated for a five to six year stretch. Yep. Even if they were losing in Stanley Cup finals, they were still the dominant force. And you could say that exact same thing about the Tampa Bay Lightning. For four straight years, they have been dominating the regular season and the postseason. But the regular season doesn't matter to me. When we're talking about a dynasty, it, it, maybe that's unfair, but I don't care about that. We don't talk about the Denver Nuggets or the Atlanta Hawks or um, the unbelievable New England Patriots that went 16-0 and in the regular season. We talk about the rings. That, that's what our culture has become, talk for better about, or worse. You talk about the rings, yes, but if you have a historical regular season and back it up in the playoffs, that goes into the dynasty conversation. Sure, but you got to win. And, and so like the Tampa Bay Lightning, I'm not giving them extra credit that they were a good regular season team before they were able to win the cup. I'm not giving the Avalanche extra credit that they've been really good in the regular season for a number of years.
years in the past if they win this cup. That's part of their story, don't get me wrong, and history will remember them fondly as a result of that. But I'm not giving them credit towards the dynasty conversation I mean, for, I mean the for year, what they do in the regular season. The year season. prior, and I know they got bounced in the first round, but the year prior to them winning back-to-back they cups. They won the President's Trophy. They had 62 wins in an 82-game schedule. Yeah, but like, I don't care about that when we're talking about a dynasty. Do, I, do you? Do, do you? I, I mean, they lost a, in the first round. I get they lost in the first round, but that was the that was the lead-in to going back-to-back with Stanley Cup championships. And I mean, they they had 128 points. I don't know if I don't know how many teams have had more points than that in a season. I'm not saying that that's what's going to make or break them being in the dynasty conversation, but I add that season into the conversation. Like you started the dynasty conversation by winning 62 games in an 82 game schedule, and then the next season you win the Stanley Cup. The next season you win the Stanley Cup, and then the next season you either are going to win the Stanley Cup or you're going to lose in the Stanley Cup final. I think that four year span goes into the dynasty. conversation. So you think they're a dynasty already, no matter what happens in this Stanley Cup? No, I think they have to win this Stanley Cup. Then what's what's it matter that they were the best team in the regular season before? Because you said that the regular season doesn't matter. I think the regular season goes into conversation. conversation. If I do... If I were of the opinion that the regular season did matter, it held value to but, me, but let's then look, I would take that into account and it wouldn't matter to me if they win this cup or not. They're already a But dynasty. let's look at it this way. Let's say they lose this series against Colorado and then next year they go on to win the Stanley Cup. That I, changes. But that's it. I mean, we're adding an extra year to the well, conversation. I know, but, the, then, but like the dynasty conversation, I think, is still there, even if they're not winning three straight. It could be. But that's that's an if. Like if we see... Uh, over the next four years, LeBron James win three NBA finals, then the Lakers would at that point be a, a, a dynasty. But that hasn't happened yet. I, I can't react to anything that that takes place over the next three to four years. I, I'm just talking about for the right now. What are we watching right now? And for, for me right now, I, I don't think yet the Lightning are a dynasty unless they win this series. They, they've got to be able to win this series first, and then I'm willing to have that conversation and I think part of that for me as to why I'm not in that in that respect yet is because they didn't do it in 2019 when they were the president's trophy winner. A couple of people on the Air Comfort Service text line have brought up the Blackhawks in the early 2010s. That was three championships in five years. As much as it hurts me to say that, I, I would consider that a, a dynasty. dynasty as well. You know, it's not three and four, but three and five is... Uh, you may as well. And and the other two years they didn't win it, they were competitive. Another- would you? 2010, 2013, and 2015. It's three and five. Yeah, three and three and six. Well, I guess three and six. Yeah, because that's that is very similar to the Giants' conversation. Would would you can do you guys qualify that as a quote unquote dynasty? I mean, I would because I they dominated a span of a, a stretch of ten years. And I mean, like the Chicago Blackhawks were always at number one, even if they because didn't they lose in the finals one of those years also? Uh, yeah, no, uh, no, they didn't. No, they they beat the Flyers in 2010, Boston in 2013, and then Tampa in 2015. What was 11? 11 was 11 Boston, was Vancouver. Vancouver versus Boston. Yeah. 12 was the Kings versus the Devils. And then 14 was the Kings versus the Rangers. Yeah. And again, it goes back to how you define a dynasty. I would for the Blackhawks because, like I said, they dominated a span of five, six years in the National Hockey League. And they won three cups. I think that, to me, that's a dynasty, even if it's not winning three straight cups or three and four years. Three and six is still pretty damn impressive. It is. It's it's crazy impressive. And I, I think the Giants, 10, 12, and 14 is an, is an unbelievably impressive 
uh, run as well. I, I would not qualify either of those as being that. Um, I think the way that we will look at the the Lightning if they don't win this series is similar to the way that the Lakers from the 08-2010 stretch were viewed, where they lost in 08 to the Celtics, and then they won back-to-back in 09 in 2010. And so I guess if you view that as a dynasty, then the Lightning would qualify as well. If you don't, uh, then you probably don't qualify this either. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, Paul Goldschmidt is on pace to earn MVP this season. And that is the one thing right now that is missing on his resume. We'll talk about how he's going to get there and what his current on-pace numbers are. They are unreal. We'll get into that coming up at 12 o'clock. Questions and answers, though, coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers. If you have any questions, you can get them in on the text line now. Coming up in about five minutes or so, we're going to talk about Paul Goldschmidt's unbelievable recent stretch and what it means for him when it comes to the one thing that he is currently missing on his resume. Let's start with this one from the 314. Guys, what was your level of interest in the no-hitter last night? I had found myself not really caring about them, and then suddenly it mattered a lot when it was happening for my team. It's weird how it works because I don't, I'm the same way. Like I don't really care about other no-hitters unless unless there's three outs away just because it's cool to watch the celebration. But even then, I still don't pay attention until about the fifth inning. Once you get to that second time through the order, that's where I start to really pay close attention to it. And that's what happened last night. Like I was invested. I was listening to it because of course I was, it was the Cardinals game. But by the sixth inning, once Miles Michaelis had gotten through that, that's where I became like, okay, I need to sit down and watch the rest of this. I couldn't have been more invested than I was. It it was a strange feeling because I'm like you, Alex, and this texter kind of lost interest in most of them. It it just doesn't have the same oomph Mm -hmm. for me as it once did. Now, if I'm hanging out at home, I see on Twitter, hey, there's a no-hitter alert, and I'll switch over to MLB Network and watch the end of it, but I'm I'm not going out of my way to watch them the way that I once might have. From the 314, guys, I hear a lot of people blaming Harrison Bader for breaking up the no-hitter. What do you think? I say no, not his fault. Guys, there's like a 20% chance he could catch that ball. He did everything he possibly could. Could he was busting his butt to try to get there? Anybody who couldn't make the play. Anybody who blames Harrison Bader is just miserable and hates everything that Harrison Bader does. Like they just don't like Harrison Bader. There was nothing you could do on that play. And I've seen a ton of people say, "Oh, Jim Edmonds could have made that catch." Come on. Maybe I, I don't like Harrison Bader is the best defensive center fielder in the game, and if he's not making that catch. Nobody in the game today is making that catch. 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Guys, is there anyone else on the Cardinals pitching staff other than Wayno that you think has a chance to pitch a no-hitter? These things are weird, man. I like it wouldn't shock me if Dakota Hudson yeah, got Dakota close to one. Got the and stuff. that's not because I think he's unbelievable or anything. Like I think he's probably the seventh or eighth most talented pitcher on their staff right now. But the way he pitches kind of lends to getting deeper into games and if you've got good defense behind him it could happen the the players that get these are not necessarily always the best pitchers and the one that we watched last year was like joe musgrove got (laughs) one he's good don't get me wrong but i mean if he can do it then dakota hudson could so yeah i I think dakota hudson could wayno could flaherty could those would be the guys i always look to the guys who just pitched a contact 
and I mean, obviously, you know, you look at the guys like Max Scherzer who can pick up strikeouts, and as Danny Mack mentioned, the, the Johan uh, Santana one. But like Dakota Hudson is somebody who screams to me that a guy that could do it because he's just a guy who pitches to contact. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line, guys. What's your prediction for the Stanley Cup Final? Who do you have winning, and in how many games? I got Lightning in six, with the potential of Lightning in five. If the Lightning win tonight, I think Lightning could end it in five games. I was gonna say Lightning in six too, not to uh, ride your coattails, Alex. <laughs> That's but okay. We all know Colorado doesn't stand a chance. Yeah, I just see Lightning in six back home in Game Six. Uh, I don't think Colorado makes it back to Colorado in for Game Seven. There's no way, I shape, wish, or form Darcy or France Watkins. I wish I trusted their goaltending. I think the Avs are really good. I, th- I think sometimes we undersell how good the Avalanche are just because they're the team that the Blues have to go up against. I'm going to take the Lightning, but I think they win it in seven. I think the Avs are able to push this thing to seven games because of the talent that they have, but they're beat up, and I don't like the fact that they have a clear deficiency in net, especially when compared to the other team. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love for the Lightning to win it in five or seven because I want to see them win in Colorado and watch all those fans cry. (laughs) Uh, 65780 is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers. Guys, what do you think is the over under for how many Cardinals will make the all-star team this year? Well, Goldschmidt, Arenado, Edmund. Those are obvious. I think Edmund gets in. I, if Edmund doesn't get in, if he doesn't, it would, I, I mean, Edmund should be starting. And I don't know where he would start. That's the problem. Second I think phase. he's listed as a shortstop on the ballot. Is he? I, I think so. Okay. Let me look that up. But I, I want to say he's listed as a shortstop. I mean, I think he should be starting. He and Francisco Lindor are going to battle it out for the shortstop position. But um, I think those are the only position players. I think Pujols or Molina could be the last one in. Yeah, Edmund's a shortstop Is on he? the ballot. And then I think it comes down to, I don't know if any of your starting pitchers, maybe Miles Michaelis, because he's got such a good ERA and Helsley. So I'll, I'll set the, I'll say four get in from the Cardinals. Helsley gets there. I'm with you on that. I think Edmund Goldie Arenado. I would set it at four and a half. I'd probably take the under there. I would set it at four and a half, probably just because I think there's a chance that one of Yachty, Wayno, or Pujols, Pujols gets in. I, Does Michaelis get consideration? He should. I mean, the he's guy's got great. like a... He's been really good. He's like a two, around a 2.5 ERA, 2.3. And he's second in baseball, I think, right now in innings pitched as well. He's thrown 82 innings in his first 13 starts. He's been tremendous for the Cardinals so far I mean, this year. you could potentially have six guys. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got a lot of players that are at least deserving of it right now. I'll be really curious... I wonder if they end up saying, you know what? We need to get Albert into this one. You've you got the DH League in the National would. League. I, I could see them saying we need to incorporate don't, somehow. I just don't think Yachty would get it just because he, he hasn't played in a whole lot of games. And that's no disrespect on Yachty. But I, I just think if it's going to come down to one of those two, I think Pujols makes the most sense. So some other options in terms of the DH guys who could compete for that spot. Bryce Harper is listed as a DH. That's going to hurt him. Max Muncy's listed as a DH. That's going to hurt him. I could see them saying, you know what? We're going to take Bryce Harper, though, and he's going to be an outfielder, quote unquote. Maybe. I, I think Albert gets it as your second DH. 
I think Harper is your starting starting DH going into this one, and Albert will be your back. Well, they do the last one ins though, don't they? They could it, he, they could do it that way. That's too. where I think Pujols. I think gets Albert it. ends up getting in, so I'll take the over on four and a half. Yeah, just because of that. Coming up in about fifteen minutes or so, we'll play a game of more likely to happen. You get two scenarios. We'll tell you which one is more likely. But next, Paul Goldschmidt is on pace to change the one thing that's missing from his resume. We'll tell you how he's doing it. Coming up next here on One Hundred One ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 2-1, lifted in the air out to center. It's well hit. Sawinski back. It is gone! Dead center! Another Goldie bomb! And Goldie lifts a fly ball out to deep center field. Reynolds is back near the wall. Leaps, go! It's over the wall. It's in center. Freeze is landed. And the 2-1 is out to deep center again. Yes! He's done it again. The man is ridiculous. He's flat out ridiculous. Three-run homer. His second of the game. Goalie is driven in five. MVP. That's the one thing that's missing at this point from Paul Goldschmidt's resume. He is now on pace this season for 51 doubles, 41 home runs, 142 RBIs. And oh, by the way, he leads the league, all of baseball, actually, in batting average at 349. Second in baseball right now is at 333. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. I don't even know what more there is to say about Paul Goldschmidt at this point. He is the best player in the National League this year, in my opinion. And I do believe that as of today, he should probably be the favorite to win National League MVP. There are other really impressive performances, though, so far. Manny Machado has been outstanding. Mookie Betts, same thing. Bryce Harper, he's mostly been doing it as a DH. So that changes some things defensively and the value that he's bringing to the table. But he's putting together another tremendous season offensively as well. Alex, I was going through some of the, the rankings for Goldie in, in all of baseball. First in batting average, second on-base percentage behind only Brendan Donovan, by the way. The Cardinals have the top two players in baseball and on-base percentage this year. Second in slugging percentage, first in OPS plus. He's tied for third in home runs, second in RBIs behind only Pete Alonso in fourth in doubles this season. This is a season unlike anything we've seen from a Cardinals hitter since Albert Pools. Like that's the only comp that you can come up with if you're looking at some of the numbers that he's on pace for. It's him, it's Albert, and then everybody else after that. Yeah, and I know people hear that and be like, no way. But look, the home runs may not be, although he's hit 16 and 61 games. He's on pace which for is, 40. This is Albert Poole's pace. I mean, it really is. And the, the one that really gets me, one, I mean, in terms of OPS, best player in baseball. I mean, he's above Aaron Judge right now. And everyone is talking Aaron Judge and Mike Trout in the American League. Paul Goldschmidt at least OPS wise has been better. But the other thing is he's played 61 games. Like this isn't a guy who's taking a day off once a week or something like that. I mean, he's played a lot of games in terms of the guys that we're in conversations with, you know, the Mookie Betts is Mookie's played 59 games. Manny Machado's also played 61. Pete Alonso's played 62. But again, 
You've got Paul Goldschmidt with better numbers than all of these guys. That's what impresses me more than anything is this guy is essentially a machine. He's a robot. I think Wayno said it today with Randy Carricker and Michelle Smallman. And in all reality, he is. 61 games. He's got 20 doubles, 16 home runs. And then, as I mentioned, the best OPS, not just in the National League, but in Major League Baseball. And the other thing that he's doing is he's he's playing great defense. He's a gold glove winner right now among first basemen in the National League. I mean, that that's the part that really stands out to me. Some of the plays that he makes, like they, they don't look flashy, and because nothing, honestly, that, that Paul Goldschmidt does looks particularly flashy, but it, it saves runs defensively, and he's doing it at first base right now. It, it, it's everything, man. He's, bat, he's batting right now, like the slider. We talked about this earlier in the season. That's the pitch that gets everybody out. Nobody hits it well, especially for power. You might be able to get around on a couple of them, but you're not hitting it for power. He's batting 365 this year against the slider with a 715 slugging percentage. All right, so that's not going to work. We'll stop throwing that to him. Maybe we're just going to try to get him to top over some things. We'll go with our sinker here. Just get him into a an easy ground out. Nope. Paul Goldschmidt this year is batting 450 against sinkers with a 765 slugging percentage. All right, fine. That's not working for us. Let's go change up. We'll go off speed here because he's clearly sitting against the fastball because he's batting 325 with a 570 slugging percentage against the four seam as well. So he's doing really well against those change up. It is let's go inside against him. Nope. 333 batting average 675 slugging percentage against the change up as well. You can't throw him anything at this point. He's deserving of the Barry Bonds treatment until proven otherwise. Like you, you just can't pitch to him. He is destroying the baseball at all times you look at some of the the more advanced numbers too they're right up there with it there is nothing to indicate anything we're watching right now is fluky he is just he's basically playing as if he's the best hitter in the sport right now and the one thing Alex we came into this season and we kind of talked a little bit about hey is is Paul Goldschmidt going to be a future hall of famer Is, is that something that we should start talking about the one thing that's really missing on his resume and we talked to Jeff Passan about it and he agreed it's that MVP He's gotten close a few times. He's been he's been voted second. He's been voted third. He's been in the top 10 for most of his career, honestly. He hasn't won it, though. And the guys that get into the Baseball Hall of Fame, one of the things that is attached to their mo- name a lot of the time is either a Cy Young on the pitching side of things or more often than not an MVP or an otherworldly volume numbers uh, for them over their careers. If he's able to get that MVP this year, I think he is a no doubt first ballot guy potentially after this thing is all said and done. Yeah, I've always been behind that with Paul Goldschmidt, but a first ballot Hall of Famer, I think that does coincide with an MVP and maybe a World Series uh, with Paul Goldschmidt, although I know a lot of people don't really care about the World Series when it comes to getting in. But I mean, the the part that makes you feel like an MVP is all but locked up for Paul Goldschmidt is he's doing this in his worst portion of a season. Like the beginning yeah. seasons are when Paul Goldschmidt is probably at his worst. And people are like, where the hell's Paul Goldschmidt? Well, he's hit 16 home runs and he's got, he's got more extra base hits than Bryce Harper and Manny Machado and Mookie Betts. He's got 36 <laughs> of them. So like the guy is better than these players and he's just getting into where his best portion of the season is. And I told you in the, in this, this in the office before the show, thinking about Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado on this team at the end of their careers, which I'm assuming is with St. Louis, hard to imagine it's going to be anywhere else. I mean, you can have a real debate about who was more influential in their time and tenure with the St. Louis Cardinals between Goldschmidt and Arenado in terms of big time trade by John Mosaic. And I know I'm Mr. 95% about Nolan Arenado, 
I would say Paul Goldschmidt. I think he's been more impactful in terms of an acquisition from John Mozeliak since he's been with St. Louis and by the end of his career than Nolan Arenado will be. He might be. I, I still think just the longevity of the Nolan Arenado deal might end up making him uh, the guy that you you would say that to. But, but man, the defense that you're getting at first base. I, I, I mean, say the same thing about Nolan, right? At third? Yeah, but I mean, you had guys in your system that were coming up to potentially be third baseman. Like Nolan Gorman could have gotten there, and maybe Jordan Walker could have gotten. I don't know if you had a first baseman that could be doing what Paul Goldschmidt is doing, not just offensively, but defensively. I as would well. go with the TLR. Like, I know it's a cop out, but it's it's tie for first. Well, They're both is. in the team picture. And I, I think that you could throw, um, if you're looking at John Mosellock's career here in St. Louis, Matt Holiday into that mix as well. Those are the three, in my opinion, defining trades for John Mosellock in his career here in St. Louis. But to your point on just how important uh, Paul Goldschmidt has been. I mean, think about how many of these deals the Cardinals had to make over the years, kind of that stretch between like the 2014 era and then the start of this era, so like 2019-ish. I mean, they tried to acquire star talent. They went out and got Marcelo Zuna. They went out there and got Jason Hayward. They chased stars in the offseason as well, and it just didn't work for whatever reason. Jason Hayward wasn't the offensive producer that everybody expected him to be and then, of course, took up more money in the opt-outs up in Chicago. Um, Marcelo Zuna, I thought it was a smart move at the time. It didn't work. The defining deals for Mo, I think Holiday's part of this conversation for sure. These two deals for Goldie and Arenado, if he is able to win a World Series with those two pieces as cornerstone players on the roster, I think that's what's going to get John Mosellock remembered Maybe not as fondly, because I'm not sure anybody will be as fondly as uh, what we looked at with Walt Jockety in the 2000s. But if he wins a World Series with these guys, that's how he starts to get into that conversation. Because then it is his team, truly his team. I think there are still some people in St. Louis, fair or otherwise, that will say that 2011 team, it had a lot of the Walt Jockety guys on it. And so he was a significant piece to building that team. Right, wrong, or indifferent, doesn't much matter. That's how some people view it. Now it's not. This is Moe's team now. This is Moe's organization in a lot of ways now. And if they're able to go on a run this year or next or in the next couple of years with those two guys as cornerstones, that's how you get to that career-defining place with these two moves being the ones that put you over the top. Yeah, and I think especially it's the it's the Mo mindset, which people hear the Cardinals way and they 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 freak out about it, but... In all reality, look at how the season has gone. You've got the veterans that you made the moves for at the corners, and you've got the young players who are becoming impactful on this. And that's part of the reason, one of the main reasons why this team has been so successful this season is because you're getting the MVP-type play from Paul Goldschmidt. You're getting close to that with Nolan Arenado, and then you're getting all of these guys who could all be in the Rookie of the Year conversation and Brennan Donovan, Nolan Gorman, and Juan Yepes. I remember talking about this with Mark Saxon. This was a couple of years ago now. This was before the Nolan Arenado deal for sure. And we talked about how the, the Cardinals were missing those superstar talents. And he was like, you know, what, what you're really talking about is the six wins above replacement player. Now, don't get lost in the, in the numbers, but basically those are the guys that every year add crazy value to your team. We're talking about uh, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, Mookie Betts. Those types of players are consistent six win players. And Nolan Arnado is that. Paul Goldschmidt is that. And both of those guys are on pace to be that this year. That's what the MV3 was. Those guys were always six win players. 
And now you've added Tommy Edmond into that mix as well, who's at three wins above replacement so far this year, and that's going to continue to go up over the course of the season. He's probably going to get there. When you've got three of those guys on the roster as position players, man, that's what World Series teams look like. And I hate to that's say that's how they're constructed. I hate to say this because I know it's jumping to conclusions, but sooner or later, you're probably gonna have to put Brendan Donovan's name into this conversation. Maybe. I mean, he's getting close to the two wins above replacement and the guy just continues to find ways to hit and play above average defense for you. And that's four guys you're talking about coming up in 15 minutes. Speaking of the young guys, Nolan Gorman made two plays yesterday that completely changed the way that I view him as a player. I got to give a lot of credit to that kid for the way that he played in that doubleheader. We'll do that coming up at 12:30. But come Coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us two scenarios. We'll tell you which one's more likely here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tired and still getting it no in. No hitter version. I respect it. 65780 is the air comfort service X line for more likely to happen. Let's start with this one. More likely Paul Goldschmidt wins the MVP or the Cardinals make it, not necessarily win, but make it to the World Series. MVP for Goldie, World uh, Series appearance for the Cards. Uh, I think both are likely, but Paul Goldschmidt is definitely more likely to get the MVP. I, I mean, you have to talk about like a historical drop off for him to fall out of that conversation. Um, and, and I know Mookie Betts is right there with him, Andy Machado, Bryce Harper, but man, you're getting into prime Paul Goldschmidt territory and the guy is proving it. So I'll say it's more likely that this guy wins the MVP. Goldie is officially the betting favorite. He is two and a half to one right now over on the FanDuel Sportsbook. Uh, Mookie Betts at three and a half to one. Manny Machado at five to one. You got Pete Alonso at eight to one. And then Bryce Harper at 10 to one before things start to fall off. By the way, Nolan Arenado down to 35 to one. He's on Nolan. He's gotten a little cold at the plate for what it's worth. The Cardinals to win the World Series right now to your point, Alex, on why it's more likely that it is Goldie that wins MVP. Cardinals are 30 to one right now to win the World Series, which I would put that down. I would make a slight bet on that right now. 30 to one. Hell yeah. The Dodgers are three and a half to one. Just going through the National League. Mets seven and a half. Braves 15 along with the Padres at 15 and the Brewers at 15. And then the Cardinals are at 30 to one with the Phillies at 35. To that's one. that's dumb. They should be where Milwaukee's at. I don't understand. Like what they're doing, what Milwaukee was unable to do. What? Why do people still think the Brewers are really good? Like what, what am I missing here? They've got a great back end of the bullpen. I would just probably say the star power, the name recognition. But, I mean, the Cardinals have that, too, they with Paul Goldschmidt. Name yeah. recognition. I, it's weird to Maybe me. it's on the pitching side recognition, though, when you got Hayter and... Devin Williams. Devin Williams, Woodruff, Corbin Burns, Burns, Woodruff. Yeah, I mean, you got those names compared to the pitching staff, but you're also getting Flaherty back in your... I was about to say, Flaherty, Wayno, yeah. Michaelis. Edmund, at this point, should be a nationally recognized name with Goldie, Arenado. Tyler O'Neill was an MVP Ryan conversation Helsley should year. start to be in the conversations of people talking about pitching because, I mean... The guy is still one of the best. The Brewers have scored one more run this season than they have allowed. One. Their run differential is plus one on the year. It, it's just it's very weird to me. All right, 65780 is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. Here's a blues one for you, boys. 
more likely that both Tarasenko and Kairou start next season with the Blues or that Matthew Kachuk is a Blue before the end of the trade deadline. More likely that both Tarasenko and Kairou are back or Kachuk at some point before the trade deadline is a Blue. <laughs> well, they kind of coincided with each other. I think it's more likely Tarasenko and Kairou are Blues because I, if Matthew Kachuk is not a Blue at the beginning of the season, Matthew Kachuk will not be a Blue by the trade deadline. Why would unless Calgary unless has they stink? Well, yeah, but I mean, if they, I mean, I don't see how they would stink that Look bad, there. especially in the Pacific Division. So I'll say it's more likely Vladdy and Kyrou are there. Yeah, I'd say it's more likely Vladdy and Kyrou are there as well. I, I, I really see Tarasenko coming back for this next season. I don't see the Blues trading him. Um, I could be wrong, but I just see what happened last year sort of playing out this year as well. I tend to be with you guys. I think a Chuck ends up being a blue next year in one way or another, but I think it's more likely Tarasenko and Kyra are back. As I start looking at, we start looking more at the landscape of what this off is going to be. I think Alex, your initial gut reaction is probably the right one. And that they, they kind of run it back. You bring back David Perron, you add in probably a Jacob Chikrin type. I don't know if it's specifically him, but somebody via trade to be that left-handed defenseman on that top pairing with Colton Pareko. And then you make a move for that third line left winger, maybe. like That that could be the spot where you look to upgrade. And that means that you don't have a whole lot of money coming in and you don't have a whole lot of money going out. Tarasenko, Kairou, both back. You count on them in a big way next year. More likely that Paul DeYoung is a trade ship for the Cardinals or that he returns to the active roster and contributes in a meaningful way. I'll say it's more likely he's a trade ship because of the contributes in a meaningful way. I, I just, I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but I don't know how Paul DeYoung gets playing time other than essentially the amount that Edmundo Sosa is receiving right now. Um, so to get that playing time and contribute in a meaningful way is going to be difficult. And if he continues to hit, I wonder if somebody looks at taking a chance on him because look no further than what Matt Carpenter's doing right now with the Yankees. A guy who wasn't having success with the Cardinals, still thought that he had something in the tank and they gave him a shot and he paid off. So I'll say it's more likely he's a trade chip. I think he returns to the active roster and is a major contributor. I don't know how. I don't know how that exactly would happen. Who ends up, whether it be gets sent down or is on the injured list, whatever. But as Mo always says, these things tend to work themselves out. I hate that saying. I understand. This kind of has the feel of the... I, I'm basically correcting what I got wrong with the Jordan Bennington situation. I said that there was no way Jordan Bennington would come back and contribute in any sort of meaningful way down the stretch. And he absolutely did that in a huge, huge way. Goldie or DeYoung rather is awesome defensively. He still has significant power. And if he's a guy that's batting like eighth in your order, a pretty darn good lineup. So uh, I'll go. It's more likely that he is contributing on the active roster. I'm also just not sure what you could get out, get for him right now. Uh, let's go back to the blues from the six three zero. more likely to be traded this offseason. Tarasenko or Barbashev? I would say Barbashev. Uh, no, I'm going to say Tarasenko. I think it'd be more likely he gets traded because there's a lot more value on a guy who's a potential 40 goal scorer for a team 
It's also not as expensive in what the team would have to pay, as we've discussed. And he's a one year away from free agency, where I know Barbashev is as well. But I just think there'd be more value for a team looking at Tarasenko. So I'll say Vladdy. I think it's going to be Barbashev. And the reason being is because I think the Blues are really going to push for Jacob Chikrin. First of all, Arizona's not probably going to really want Tarasenko because they're not in a win now mode. Barbashev is more of a piece you can build around, I would say. And also, Tarasenko is not going to okay a trade to Arizona. Um, at least I wouldn't think he would. So I'm going to say Barbashev is probably more likely to happen here. I think it's Barbie as well. And the reason why is because there's a great piece over on The Athletic today uh, from Jeremy Rutherford talking about what the Blues offseason is going to look like. And he gave an update on some of their current unrestricted free agents. He broke it down. And basically, I, I know that what Cap Friendly says right now is that the Blues have about $9 million in cap space. It's closer to like seven and a half when you take into account what their roster manipulation will have to be. And that's before the David Perron potential re-signing. So if they re-sign David Perron, maybe $4 million, somewhere thereabouts, you're basically down to three and a half million dollars to do anything this offseason to upgrade your roster. And that goes into the Jacob Chikrin conversation. He's at more than $4 million. You can't do a straight like prospects plus picks deal for Chikrin. You would have to also send money out to be able to bring that kind of money in. I think the guy that makes the most sense to send out in that situation would be Ivan Barbashev. So I think it is more likely that Ivan Barbashev ends up getting traded this offseason than Vladimir Tarasenko. With Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk drawer with a new TV show that's getting ready to come out. I want to hear from Alex, who he thinks at our station would be the best if they decided to do this TV show. We'll do that coming up at 1245. But next, Nolan Gorman made two plays yesterday that changed the way that I view him long-term as a player for the Cardinals. Talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Chopped up the middle, Castillo gloves, and that's by design. That is something the Cardinals work on. The run will score. Smart play by St. Louis, and again, it is by design. Because if the run scores from third before the out at second, the run counts. The Cardinals have worked on that play. Nolan Gorman is not a 10-year veteran. This is a young kid, so I got to believe this was taught. This was talked about in spring training, mm -hmm. down to the minor leagues, and had the ability to execute it. Hit up the middle, backhanded Gorman. Oh, he made the play. Nolan Gorman, a backhanded play. We saw it the other day. He's got a very strong arm. Now you put him at second base, and he's making these types of plays. Let's not overlook the defense that Gorman played at second base today. That was really good. That was really good. He turned a really good double play, quick transfer, that diving play. There's a lot of things going on right now that are super positive. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Alex, I knew, and I think all of us knew, 
Nolan Gorman's going to hit the ball really hard when he, whenever he gets up to the big leagues. And he's done that. His average exit velocity is about 91 miles per hour. That's very good. That's in the about 73rd uh, percentile. So mo- he's better than 70% of major leaguers in terms of how hard he hits it on average. If you're looking at it, where he hits it on the sweet spot, he's like 95th percentile right now. Those are hard hit balls that are on the barrel. They're at the right launch angle, all that stuff, all the fun, fancy metrics that you want to look at. Nolan Gorman is the poster child of all of those things. If you're looking at the expected numbers, he's actually gotten a little unlucky so far when it comes to what his overall results have been. He's been really good at the plate. He's hitting the ball hard. He's doing what you expected of him. It's the other stuff that has surprised me. His defensive play yesterday, he made two of them that were just outstanding, including the one that you heard coming back from break there. And then the base running as well. Uh, we saw a text a little bit earlier that said, hey, everybody makes that that play as a bit. No, they don't. No, they don't. And that's why it was featured on MLB Network earlier this morning. It's why you heard Danny Mack react the way that he did in the moment, because you don't see it very often. That is a very specific situation where you think, if I slide here, I'm going to be out. If I continue running, we might be able to score a run as a result. Nolan Gorman had the presence of mind to know Got to do it. Got to keep running right here. In this moment, this is the time when that play turns into a reality. In the NFL, Alex, wide receivers have something called sight adjustments. And it's the hardest thing for college receivers to be able to translate from what they do in the college game to what they do in the NFL. Because depending on how that corner is playing against you, you've got to run a completely different route. And it changes the concept of what that play is. And it's all based on the way that you are being defended. That will determine what your actual route is on that play. That's what that was. That was essentially a sight adjustment play by Nolan Gorman as a guy who is just reaching the big leagues as what a 21 year old kid. I mean, this, what we saw yesterday, that is the most impressed that I have been by Nolan Gorman. And it had nothing to do with what he did offensively. It was a veteran move by a rookie player. And I think that says a one, a lot about the Cardinals, just minor league system that can develop these players in that length. And two, just the ability to the ability to help a team win when you're going through a struggle. Because let's all be real here. Nolan Gorman has gone through a little bit of a cold streak in the last few games. And for that, you'd expect a 21-year-old to get down on himself and not be performing and kind of lose his way a little bit that forces his way back down to Memphis. But Nolan Gorman's pulling off moves like that. He's still performing defensively for this team, saving some runs, and he's still putting together good at-bats. And that's what you want to see out of a 21-year-old. He just doesn't look he doesn't look overmatched in the moment. And I felt like that was what you saw in that base running play, to be able to recognize what they had in front of him to score that run and essentially a very impactful run for the Cardinals. And then with the defense last night. Last night, I thought... That play where he threw across the body while his body is going towards second base to get the runner out at first. I mean, that is a that's a difference maker play defensively. And everyone coming up with Nolan Gorman looked at it as, well, he's not going to be good defensively. You're going to have to play him at DH. He's a third baseman. He hasn't been good. Whatever it is. The more reps you give the guy, the better he's going to get. And when you're around gold glove caliber players like Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt and Tommy Edmond you're going to continue to improve yourself. And I think we're seeing that improvement on a daily basis with Nolan Gorman at second base. 
65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Guys, last week I texted in and I said BK would make a terrible manager because he doesn't let the young studs play and instead labels them too quickly. It's good to be right. Nolan Gorman is hitting just fine against lefties too, by the way, because he's a stud prospect and this is what he's going to be. I don't know if he's hitting just fine against lefties. He's only had five opportunities, so I I make nothing of the sample size thus far. But you also, as you always say... Uh, go by what the team's actions are, not what they say, and they're not playing him against lefties. For a reason, and that's okay. Guys, It's lefties are like 25% of the pitchers that you see on average. So if he doesn't play 25% of the time, that's what he would typically rest anyways. So I'm not worried about that in the slightest. If he's just really good for his entire career against right-handed pitching, that's Chuck Peterson at a minimum with probably better defensive value because he's still staying on the infield. So that's a, that's a super valuable commodity and it's a guy that you want to have around. What has impressed me is that I thought we were looking at a guy who uh, just based on all of the reports that we had heard, I'm not going to pretend like I watched a ton of Nolan Gorman down in the minors, but based on all of the reports, it sounded like Gorman was a, corner infield slug kind of guy we had multiple national analysts i believe jeff passan was one of them come on our show and say like he's an average defender at best in a best case scenario an average defender whether it was third base or second base and what you saw yesterday with that play that he made throwing against his body with the momentum going away from first base and being able to make that play Alex, that's one of those where you you kind of put it in the back of your mind and say, if you're capable of that, Mm -hmm. it changes what I view your ceiling to be at that position. He is athletic enough. He's not like Tommy Edmond out there. He's not super rangy and he doesn't need to be. But I was wondering, like, can he be at second base? What Johnny Peralta was for the Cardinals at shortstop, where Johnny Peralta was never going to make the highlight real play. But he was always going to make the routine one. He very rarely missed on those, at least at the beginning of his time here in St. Louis. He was just really solid at shortstop. And that's all he needed. Just be a really solid defender and show up at the plate and we're going to be good to go. If Gorman could be that, I was going to be happy. Peralta didn't make a whole lot of plays like what you saw yesterday from Nolan Gorman. That's an athletic play that he was making going towards second base. So that kind of changes what I view as being his ceiling defensively at second. Maybe he can be a slightly above average guy there. And I think it's going to take some time, but this is why they didn't want to pigeonhole him. And this is where I was probably wrong. It's why they didn't want to pigeonhole him as a true DH on a day-to-day basis. And they do want to continue getting him work out there at second base. I don't think you got to do it every day. Donovan is good enough defensively and he's shown so much value that You can make this thing work with Gorman getting some opportunities at second and getting some opportunities as a DH against right-handed pitching. And then later on, you can flip things around if you want to, but he's he's better than I gave him credit for defensively so far. Yeah, and I mean, he reminds me a lot of just a Mike Moustakas type of player. And I mean, uh, defensively, like, he's good. But the range is never going to be there in terms of just the movement like Tommy Edmond is able to accomplish. And I don't know how that affects things when it goes back to taking away the shift and keeping guys on one side of the bag next season. But for right now, he's not. I've always said it. As long as they're not a liability, they need to keep performing there because you need the bat in the lineup. And I know, again, the bat has gone silent, although he did have two hits last night, which is a good sign for him. But... The more he's going to, it's the same with Tommy Edmond. The more you're going to give him reps at second base, the better this team is in position with. Also, 
the versatility that Ali Marmol is going to utilize with this team because Nolan Gorman doesn't have to play every day at second base because now you've got Brendan Donovan and you can move guys around and give guys days off and let them perform in the DH. That's the luxury of what the league has now become in the National League, and it's a luxury for Nolan Gorman to continue his career. I do want to play this for you. Uh, Miles Michaelis was on MLB Network, of course, yesterday after the game because he was talking to them about his near no-hitter, and Greg Amsinger was hosting MLB Tonight, here was kind of their back and forth with Amzinger saying, hey, Nolan Gorman, pretty good defender, eh? And here's what Miles Michaelis had to say. Nolan Gorman, people were like, can this kid play second base at the big league level? He made a couple <sighs> dazzling oh boy, plays. He? He, he's got a good, strong arm when he when he has to kind of go backhand and come across his body. He's a big, strong kid. Uh, he gets to that ball and puts a good, firm throw on it. And, you know, he's, you know, laying out all over the place, making great plays. Uh, you know, when you got to move a gold glove or off a position, I guess you always worry. Uh, who's going to fill it in, but he's done a fantastic job. I mean, I love it out there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was Nolan Gorman on this team when the Mets and Cardinals brawl took place? Uh, no. Okay, so when Gorman and or when the the Cardinals and Mets brawl again, Gorman versus Alonzo. Absolutely. Big, strong guy versus big, strong guy. 100%. By the way, just really quickly on that note of the Cardinals versus the Mets, uh, they're not playing against the Mets, but they are getting some NL East teams coming up here in a couple of weeks. Man, have you seen what the schedule looks like at the start of July? Mm-hmm. Three at Philly, four at Atlanta, four more at home against Philly, and then three against L.A. Nice. What June was in terms of the Cardinals being able to extend their lead in this division, and they've done a pretty good job of that. They've taken care of the bad teams on their schedule here. That's what July is in terms of finding out what the ceiling is. Mm -hmm. June's about getting that lead. July is about, all right, finding out where do you stand right now among the National League contenders? Because you're going up against a few of them over a two-week stretch where July 1st to July 14th, the only teams you're playing are Philly, Atlanta, and L.A. Those are going to be a lot of fun. And the good news is you get Jack Flaherty back for that one. I would imagine you're probably going to be a little bit more solidified in your your bullpen for those games. And like you just said, you're going to find out what the true ceiling is of this Cardinals team. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're going to talk about Tommy Edmond and how he continues to impress with Every aspect of his game, Mark DeRosa broke him down earlier today in terms of what he does defensively on the bases and at the plate. We'll let you hear a piece of that coming up at one o'clock. But next, let's dive into the junk drawer with a new reality TV show that's coming around. I want to ask Alex who he thinks at 101 ESPN would be best at this. We'll do it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario, that's Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. By the way, for all of you that are texting in, God bless it. I, I love how much of a fan following Tanner Hendrickson has has developed at this point. He'll be back tomorrow. He's gonna be back in studio with us. We've Damn. got to get all of his terrible takes. I was gonna say we must have some T-bone threes when he comes back to oh. make people happy. We're just gonna make the whole show Tanner-centric segments. Hey, that's fine with me. Less <laughs> talking for you and me. I'll let him go. So he'll be back tomorrow in about 10 minutes or so. We're gonna talk about Tommy Edmund. But right now, let's dive into the junk drawer. Alex, did you ever watch the show Squid Game? No, never watched it. Grant, did you watch the Squid Game it. show? Yeah. I Is it worth watching? I think yes. Because the last time somebody did I need to watch something, I watched the human centipede and vomited while I was watching it. I don't know anything it's about that. It's not like that. Okay. It's it's creepy. It's weird. It's There's a lot of blood and guts and gore and all of yeah. that stuff. So, like, if that's something you're not interested in, I would just say up front, like, 
it doesn't get any worse than the first episode. The first episode yeah. is as bloody and as gory as it will be the, re- the rest of the show. Okay. So if you can get through that, you should watch the rest of I mean, it. I made it through Sopranos, so it should be all right. Yeah, you, you should be good. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it, I think it's worth your time. Netflix is planning a new show, new reality show, based on Squid Game. So the way this is going to work is it's going to have 10 episodes. There will be 456 different players that can be in a series of games that are inspired by the original show. And up for grabs is a $4.6 million reward, the largest cash prize according to CNBC in reality TV show history. Now, Alex, since you're not familiar with the show, the way that it works is they play games that are inspired by children's games. So, like, they'll play marbles or, like, this is not in the show, but, like, dominoes, those sorts of things, right? Parlor games that kids would play. Red Light, Green Light was, like, the biggest one. Red Light, Green Light? Mm -hmm. Great game, by the way. Red Rover? Play that one? They could probably do something like that. Yippee. But those those are the kinds of games that you would play in this. Who do you think at 101 ESPN, out of everybody here, would be the best and most likely to win? Squid Game the Challenge is what it's called. But I, I'm confused. Like, is why is there death involved? In the real thing? In yeah. the actual yeah. show? Well, if you lose... They kill you. Spoiler alert. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of curious. So does that play into this one? Like, like if, if you I lose, mean, if anybody's you- seen the trailers, they've seen it. Red light, green light. Like, if you move after it is a red light, you're dead. Can I ask the question? How do you t- like what? How are they killing these people? Uh, I mean, guns. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> just I mean, it depends on the above. scenario, but yeah, guns. Okay, I'm gonna have to watch this because this <laughs> this is this is odd. Okay, so who? So are we are we adding death into this, or are we just adding no, like kid no, games? No, no, man. Okay, I just Nobody's needed dying to. I just, I just want. It's I want to know, show, man. Because like that's gonna change my opinion. If if there's death on the line, some people might be able to do it, and some people might not be able to. Who do you think is like kid games? First pick. If we were doing <laughs> well, kickball style, t- Tanner I'm would be great teams at, here. Tanner would be great at kid games. Um, He's still a child. Well, in the words of Randy Carricker, BK, no. I think. Well, it, man. I think it's a. I don't know. Like, I think it depends on, on, of course, but we're, we're just assuming we're well, I mean, you start games. with the pro athletes, obviously BT and Jamie rivers. They're probably going to be at the top echelon of this Stalter up there as well. And then it gets that like, that's, that's tier one. And then it gets to tier two. And I don't, to me. <laughs> I don't know. No, I didn't say you. I don't, I don't know. I think I'm trying to think who would surprise us. I think Marshy might be the one that Marshy's athletic. Us with yeah. something like this. I know Marshy's athletic. Um, T-Bone, no. I think I, I think I, I think we could hold our own in in these types of games. These are the types of games that I would be <laughs> you okay don't need with. Athleti- need athleticism to do marbles. No, you, you don't. Or red light, like, green light. I'm great at red light, green light. There's some intelligence that goes into yeah, some of there's these. There's some strategy in it too. There's definitely strategy that goes into them, like those sorts of things. And some of it's just fl- flat out luck. Like what you get picked to do. There was one game that they played where it's like honeycomb and it's in a shape and you've got to break it around that specific shape. Um, And if you break it into the shape, you're done. You're dead. Literally. Game over. So there's some luck on which shape you got there. I don't know, man. Like I said, honestly, your entire show is screwed. Don't even try out for something. Yikes. Tough affair. Yikes. (laughs) Tug of war. Um, 
I mean, I'll be one of the first ones gone. I'm about as uncoordinated <laughs> as it gets. War. So. Obviously, Jamie would probably be number one. Yeah. Anthony Stalter's got some biceps. Say, Stalter is a a large man. I I would say I would put myself third. I'd put myself third. You want to do a tug of war one on one? Yeah. I'll tug of war with you. I feel like we could do that. I think I think I could take you in that. <laughs> I think I could take I you. I, I think I could take you. I'm in a big that. strong guy. No, you're not. No, you're not. I can't put you in the hospital in tug of war though. Somebody said Michelle would beat all of you guys. I think Michelle would be sneaky good at this because yeah, Michelle's yeah. really smart. Yeah, Michelle's one and of those. So she like, would find a way. Yeah. Michelle's one of those like fly under the radar dark horse that's, types that would come in. Somebody said she's the one that would surprise everybody. I think that's probably right. I think Michelle would be the one that goes like fifth overall in this, and everybody would leave saying. How was she the fifth overall selection? Yeah. Should have been like second. Yeah. I think T-Bone would probably rank last for a lot of people. More so from the physical presence. I think that's where T-Bone would be like, yeah, we'll, we'll go last here. Somebody said Jackson wouldn't even do it because 4.6 million is just not enough that's to get true. him off of his couch. He, he makes a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's true. I think Tim might be pretty good at this. You think so? I do. Yeah. I think Tim might do pretty well at this one as well. Um, he's a good golfer. Yeah, because golf has a lot to do with tug of war. <laughs> Come up for 15 minutes. <laughs> Don't know how those are tied together with the, but hey, I agree. What are reasonable expectations <laughs> for Jack Flaherty now that he is making his way back into the rotation? We'll talk about that coming up at 115. Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues at 130. But next, I was listening to MLB Network earlier today, and Mark DeRosa broke down the value that Tommy Edmond brings to the Cardinals. Of course, we know about the defense. We know about what he's doing right now at the plate. He broke down his base running earlier today, Alex. I want you to hear what he had to say and the kinds of company that Tommy Edmond is keeping right now as a base runner. We'll do that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. First pitch. Hit out to deep right. It's at the With Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Tommy Edmonds' leadoff home run from yesterday. Audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Alex, we've talked all year about what Tommy Edmond has been doing at the plate, and it's been nothing short of impressive. He has been a guy who went from never walking really in the first three years of his major league career to walking about 10% of the time. He never struck out before. He's not striking out now, despite the fact that he's been, been more selective this year. He, in his career has been around a 260 batting average type of guy this year he's batting 290 and he's increased his slugging percentage. All of that brings him to be 30% above league average in terms of his, uh, his overall offensive production. That's good for second among all major league, or excuse me, all national league shortstops so far this year. That's one part of his game. We also know he's very good defensively. And so far this year, if you look at what he's done at shortstop, he's actually been a plus defender there. While we know he was always a plus defender at second base, but the thing we don't talk a ton about with Tommy Edmond and really in general is his base running. We know that he's a great base stealer. He's one of the best in the league, 
But it's not just that part of his game that he impresses with. It's also the ability to take the extra base. It's the ability to never run into outs. And MLB Network broke down Tommy Edmonds' game earlier today. Mark DeRosa brought up, okay, here's what he's doing right now when it comes to his base running and what kind of value that has to the Cardinals. Tommy Edmonds, 2022 base running ranks, okay? Stolen bases, he's got 15, third in the league. Runs scored, 49%. Run score percentage, second in the league. Base is taken. Base is taken that most guys won't. 17, first in the league. You ever making out on the bases? We've heard, heard Billy Ripken time and time again. Guys running themselves into outs on the bases. I see it every night. Outs on bases, nope, tied for first. He doesn't do that as well. Keep it rolling. Look at this. Highest single season Fangraphs base running stat in an expansion era. You're talking about... Some of the game's great base runners, Vince Coleman, Maury Wills, Mike Trout's on every board we ever put up. Beltron in 03. And then you got Ricky Henderson, and there's Tommy Edmond right on pace for a 16.2 base running percentage. He does it offensively. He does it base running. He does it being a pro. He does it defensively. He is the perfect player. That last part that he was talking about, the Fangraphs base running metric. Don't worry about what it all means. Don't worry about the numbers. Don't get bogged down into any of that. It's basically breaking down how good are you as a base runner? How much value do you have on the bases? Alex, in the expansion era right now, Tommy Edmond is on pace to add more value to his team as a base runner than any other player in the last 50 years. Think about that for a second. No other baseball player in this stretch of time in the expansion era has added more value to their team as a base runner than Tommy Edmond is on pace to do so so far this season in 2022. And he said Vince Coleman is on this list. Mike Trout is on this list. Carlos Beltran, Ricky Henderson. Those are the guys that previously were atop the leaderboard. What Tommy Edmond is doing in every aspect of the game so far this year I don't think there's a comparison for it, honestly, especially now that he's doing so as a legitimate plus defender at the shortstop position. Man, I mean, to, to hear that with the names of guys like Vince Coleman, I, I mean, I, I just I knew I knew he was a good player. I didn't know he was going to be that good of a player. And it's just it's just everything he provides. I mean, they nailed it on MLB Network saying like he is the perfect player. I mean, and essentially when we're talking about base running, he's the perfect leadoff hitter too. Yeah. like that was the one thing we talked about this a couple of days ago. That That's the one thing I really felt like the Cardinals were lacking when you look at the teams that are so good and always at the at the uh, the top of the, the conversations. They always have that leadoff hitter for you. And whether it's the same guy or if it's a different player, but the leadoff position is so impactful in those teams having success. And now you have that with Tommy Edmond because he's not only getting on base, but as we just heard, he's one of the best base runners. He steals bases. He's always putting himself in a prime position to score a run. And when you talk about how good Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado are at the top of your batting order on top of whether it's Gorman or Brendan Donovan, I mean, you're essentially talking about taking the lead in the first inning of most games because of Tommy Edmond. And I think that's where he should take the most pride in his game. The gold glove defense is phenomenal. The sometimes power you see, the always on base, but it's more so the speed and the base running that he provides to always give his team a potential chance to win a game. I like that you brought up the idea of him as the leadoff hitter. He's now become the prototype, right? What you think about when you think of leadoff hitters is getting on base, hitting for contact, making sure that you're able to steal second. You have a guy that has some speed to be able to get home uh, on a well hit double potentially or certainly go first to third on a single. Those sorts of things 
are what you expect out of your leadoff hitter, at least in the classic sense. Now we've gone a little bit away from that. You see guys like Kyle Schwarber, Anthony Rizzo. Those guys have been leadoff hitters before, but really it all comes back to getting on base and being able to score whenever the guys behind you, those those run producers are up to the plate. Tommy Edmonds become that. And he, there was a time over the last couple of years where there were real questions about whether or not he would be that long-term or if he was better suited maybe as that quote-unquote secondary leadoff guy at the bottom of your order, getting fewer at-bats per game. <clears throat> you now have a lineup that almost feels like a prototypical Major League Baseball lineup. And I haven't been able to say that about the Cardinals, Alex, since like 2013. I mean, you look up and down. Right now, Tommy Edmond batting leadoff. I love what they've got with Nolan Gorman batting second against right-handed pitching right now. Goldie is perfect as a three-hole hitter. That's what you, if you could build a prototypical three-hole hitter, it would be Paul Goldschmidt. Nolan Arenado, when he's right, is a perfect cleanup guy. And then you get into that transition zone. And I like having contact players right in that area. Guys that do get on base at a good clip. Brendan Donovan, Dylan Carlson, those are perfect for that five, six, seven ish area. You've got some danger coming from the bottom of your lineup and a guy like Tyler O'Neill. Juan Yepes can fill into those spots as well. Bottom of your order, you've got that secondary leadoff hitter like you guys have been talking about all year long with Harrison Bader. And then you throw in your catcher at number eight. Like you can't really construct a lineup better than that in 2022 that is the modern ideal lineup that we're watching right now for the Cardinals yeah and it's a lineup that they've been trying to accomplish for many years trying to find those guys and I think the bigger issue has always been finding the middle of the order bats because Marcelo Zuna wasn't that guy Jason Hayward wasn't that guy and Randall Gritchick didn't be that guy and then you finally found the the ability to trade for those two. But then again, you go back towards the leadoff hitter position. And that's been an area that I know John Jay held it for a while. Skip Schumacher held it for a while. But after those guys, and I mean, we're talking post 2011, it's been a 10 year process to try and find a guy who could be a consistent leadoff hitter for you. And since we're talking about Edmund, you know, Mike Petriello, who we've had on the show many times, you know, each week he puts together a list of uh, players that he feels like are, are the best in that category. And, this week, actually a couple of minutes ago, we just put it out. Would you take Tommy Edmond over Trey Turner and Don, Dansby Swanson? Are we talking like long-term defense? What what are we uh, overall as a player long-term? No, I would take Trey Turner. Because he, he's, well, he's got Edmond above Trey Turner and below Dansby Swanson. And to me, as a long-term answer at shortstop, just well, I think he's got it as currently the best at that position. Okay. And currently at the best at the position, he thinks Swanson's number one, Edmonds number two, Trey Turner's number three. And to be in that Based category, on the way they've produced so far this year, I could definitely listen to the argument. But to be into that category, that's why I think I'm most impressed because I mean, we as Cardinals fans spent the entire offseason wanting Carlos Correa and Corey Seager and Trey Turner and Dansby Swanson. And now you essentially have that player. Yeah, we were looking at this during the break. Like you look at what Dansby Swanson has done so far this year. And I know he was he was the candidate that we talked about in the offseason of, hey, you look towards 2023. The guy that makes sense here in St. Louis, Dansby Swanson. I mean, he's mm-hmm. been above average as a player, basically all around for the Braves. He's got the pedigree. Everything makes sense about him being an answer for you here. He's probably not going to command like the eight to 10 year deal that some of these other guys have. He makes sense here. And this year, he's had a little bit of a breakout for the Braves, but he's been almost identical so far to what you've seen out of Tommy Edmond. That's both offensively and defensively. You said this a couple of days ago, I think, Alex. 
might be that we're just watching the Cardinals develop their future shortstop from within. And I know Katie kind of pushed back on that a little bit earlier this week when we talked with her saying, hey, you know, part of the value for Tommy Edmond is that he can play everywhere. And there's truth to that. But there's reason why Nolan Arenado doesn't move around. It's because he's excellent at third base and you just want him at third base. Paul Goldschmidt is a first baseman. Uh, Tyler O'Neill is a left fielder. Could he play elsewhere? Probably. But that's his spot. If Tommy Edmonds really good at shortstop, you don't need him playing second base. Nope. So we can move guys like Brendan Donovan or Juan Yepes or honestly Paul DeYoung around him. He's the pivot point. And that's what he's become so far for the Cardinals this year. And man, has it been a lot of fun. To and be that able to changes watch. the area of focus on, on what you're trying to do moving forward with your roster. Change some money around mm-hmm. because you got control of a cheaper player with Tommy Edmond to play a big time position for you. You've also got a cheaper option at second base to play a big time position for you. And now you start talking about the areas that can change a world series outcome for a team. And now you start looking at the pitching. Yep. You know, that, that's where you've that, got it, but you add more to it and then you become a dangerous team at $20 million that we were looking at potentially the Cardinals having to spend maybe a little less than that at shortstop this offseason If they were going to fix that long-term, that might now be able to be repurposed into your rotation on a one or a two year deal for one of those big time arms. All reality, it feels kind of like what Washington did when they won that World Series where they threw all of the money at the starting pitching because they knew that they had the players to to perform at the position that they needed them to. And they said, well, let's just load up on the one area that other teams aren't going to beat us at. And you had Scherzer, Strasburg and Patrick Corbin. Just don't go long term on that. Coming Please up no. in about 15 minutes, we'll talk about we'll talk to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, about what he's expecting from this Stanley Cup final. And does he think that the Tampa Bay Lightning are already a dynasty with what they've accomplished thus far? We'll do that coming up at 1.30. Coming up next, though, what are reasonable expectations for Jack Flaherty? We'll dive into that and which of the young starters will stay in the rotation now that Jack's back. Coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. had some really good conversations as far as um, what he felt was important. Uh, Everybody kind of weighed in, and at the end of the day, he was very adamant about increasing the intensity uh, and not just the workload. Um, So he wanted to be able to replicate that here and not in Memphis. So uh, the more we talked about it, he'll be our starter tomorrow. That was Ollie Marmel yesterday talking about how the Cardinals came to the conclusion that the best-case scenario for the team was, ah, It's time to bring Jack Flaherty back to the big leagues. And instead of him getting another minor league start, he is going to get a start for the big league club. That will be the case later on today. Alex, what are realistic expectations in your mind for Jack Flaherty today against the Pittsburgh Pirates? No hitter. Okay. Because it's a minor league team and they don't matter. Okay. Right? He's got 60 pitches, so that seems unlikely. But (laughs) no hitter and 60 pitches? That's legendary. In the scenario in which he does not throw a no hitter. What are maybe slightly lowered realistic expectations? I think the fact that you have Andre Pallante out of the bullpen and this was the guy that was supposed to be starting in this spot, I think realistic expectations for Jack Flaherty would be five innings, right? I mean, 60 pitches, five innings. Maybe that's best case scenario. Maybe more realistic would be four innings because he's coming back. But, I mean, for me, from everything that everyone's been saying about Jack Flaherty, and I know it's double A that he's been pitching rehab and single A that he's been pitching rehab, but they're saying that he not only is pitching well, he's pitching efficiently. 
And if that's the case, I mean, I'm looking at a guy who with 60 pitches, I think you could do some damage against the Pittsburgh Pirates. If he's getting the swing and miss stuff, if he's pitching to contact, if the pitches look the way that Jack Flaherty's pitches usually look, I'd say 60 pitches to get me four to five innings with Jack Flaherty. That's ideal. I will. I, I think it's less for me about the, the number of innings because you do have him backed up today by Palante. So he should be able to give you three to four as well. So it shouldn't be an issue for you, regardless of how many innings Jack Flaherty ends up going. It's really about just the look of it, him getting out of this thing, healthy, feeling good, being a part of the rotation, the next turn around. And if he can give you like three to four strong innings of looking like he is back to being himself. That's all I'm looking for. Get some swing and miss stuff. Stay around the zone. Be efficient, like you said. Get, if you're going four innings, like five strikeouts in that stretch, something like that, just to show us, like, okay, he's he's got some good movement on his pitches. It's awkward at bats. I just want him to look like himself again. Look like a slightly watered down version of himself because he's not going the full distance that he normally would. But I think that's kind of what I'm hoping for out of Jack today. Now, as we move forward, I expect more out of him as the season progresses and as his development continues. I love though, that they're doing this. This is something that they refused to do last year with Jack as he was coming back. They wanted to get as lengthened out as he could before he came back to the big leagues. And then there was still a little bit more of a growing period. Once he got back, the way that Ollie explained how this all went down, Alex, it was one of those things where it was clearly collaborative between the player and the team. The player said, I feel really good right now. I don't feel like I need to go back down to the minors to hone in my my pitches. They, they're working against AAA hitting. I've seen that. I know how they're going to respond to the stuff that I'm throwing. I need to be able to do that in the big leagues. I need to see the intensity level tick up, and that's more important to me than getting to 75 pitches or something like that. So I liked the fact that they allowed Jack Flaherty to tell them, I'm good. I, I don't need another rehab assignment. And they listened. And they decided, okay, if you think you're good, we'll go ahead and do this with you. And because they have Andre Pallante, who can back him up as a starter slash reliever, long man type of player, it allows them the flexibility to do that the way that they were hoping they could last year with like Jordan Hicks and Jack Flaherty returning or Dakota Hudson and Jack Flaherty returning. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I'm I guess what. The reason I'm looking more at the innings is just uh, they've been saying, Jack's been saying, the front office has been saying that the stuff looks incredible. And so, yes, I want to see that, but like I'm going off of what we've already heard that he has done so far and feel like it's there. And I want to see that, but I want to see the longevity from Jack Flaherty. I don't want to see him have to throw 25 pitches in one inning. I want to see I want to see that effectiveness where if he is getting 60-ish pitches like Katie Wu said that he would be getting – I want to see the length there for Jack Flaherty. And then, of course, what you want to see most realistically is him come out of that unscathed so that he's healthy enough and you can continue to build off of that. So Jack's going to be one-fifth of your rotation. You'll also have Dakota Hudson and Miles Michaelis and Adam Wainwright. Those are four of your five starters right now and should be four of your five starters, barring some sort of injury for the rest of the season. The question is, who's getting that fifth spot, Alex? Because you've got Matthew Liberatore, who looked pretty good. Credit where it's due. Looked pretty good yesterday. Zach Thompson has mostly been pretty solid outside of basically one inning against the Pittsburgh Pirates when everything kind of fell apart for him. And then you've got Andre Pallante, who's been excellent in essentially any role that you've given him so far this year. 
Here's what Stalter said yesterday on the fast lane as they were talking about which of those guys they would keep into the rotation as we move forward. Andre Palante is is that guy for the bullpen now, slash being a starter. He has earned opportunity. So if it winds up being him that that occupies that fifth, fifth starter role, I got no issue with that. But I think I'd rather see him in the bullpen and continue to see Matthew Libertor. I am actually with Anthony Stalter here. I'm same. And in in a weird way, it's not necessarily a point in favor of Liberator so much as it is, I really like the idea of Zach Thompson and Andre Palante as options out of your bullpen right now. I think your bullpen is a bigger issue for you in those middle innings than what you're getting out of any of these three guys as starters. I think the expectations are pretty similar for all three. You expect them to go out there and give you four to five innings regularly and hopefully give up three or fewer runs. If they can do that, feel pretty good, honestly, about what they've given you as a starter. Basically, what you were getting last year out of guys like um, Jay Happ or John Lester or Wade LeBlanc there for a while, that's what your fifth starter is right now. I think that the value that you get, though, out of the bullpen with Palante and Zach Thompson being in there as being quote-unquote piggyback guys or giving you two innings one day, being off for a couple, giving you two or three more innings the next time out, that's where I think the real value comes. So I want to see those guys in the bullpen, and then that allows me to the, – the player that's remaining is Matthew Libertor. I don't think he has the stuff to be in your bullpen. Yeah, I think Matthew Libertor is either a starter for the bigs or in the minors. Agreed. And, and I think that's what you need because his long-term future is a starter. Zach Thompson, he has been viewed as a bullpen pitcher. He's looked good as a starter. I, I hate the fact that Palante goes to the bullpen now because I think of anybody out of the three that we're talking about, Palante has shown me the most stuff that looks like he could be a, ro- a legit rotation guy. Reminds me a lot of where we were at with Alex Reyes for the longest time. But I'm with you and I'm with Anthony Stalter. My bullpen needs to be fixed in terms of to not wear guys down and to not sit here and get the tight butt cheeks when Drew Verhagen and Nick Wickering come out of the bullpen. That's where Palante comes into play. Like after this season, I'd love to see more of Andre Pallante as a starter. But for right now, I think what makes the most sense is Thompson out of the bullpen to fix the left side with a up and down season for TJ McFarlane. Pallante is that weapon in tight jam situations. And Libertor gets the fifth spot until Steven Matz comes back. 65780 is your comfort service X line from the 618. Guys, we can't have all of our starting pitching prospects in the bullpen. Why not? Why? That's how you make a good bullpen. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I, I actually Julio, completely disagree. Julio Urias was the closer for the Dodgers all the way through, and he was their starter, but he was the closer because it made the bullpen better. Yeah, I mean, you look back at 06. Who was the closer for that team? Uh, I believe his name was... Um, Adam Wainwright. Hall he was of pretty Fame good. future Adam Wainwright. I mean, you look at some of the recent usage. Lance Lynn started his career in the bullpen. I mean, this is the way Michael that Waka the Cardinals... out of the bullpen. That worked. It, Ishikawa. <laughs> Not so great. No, nah, it didn't work. This is the way that a lot of Cardinals starters get their, their start in the big leagues. And it's the, the way that a lot of starters across all of baseball get their start in the big leagues. They get their feet wet with a couple of innings here or there out of the bullpen, and then you try to extend them over time. I mean, that's what the that's what the hope was this year with J- Jordan Hicks. And I think that's why I have more belief and trust in the Cardinals doing this. They showed this year the ability or at least the willingness to stretch those guys out mm-hmm. at the big league level. If they hadn't done that this year, most of it's just been talk in recent years. There was always that question of, hey, is Trevor Rosenthal going to get stretched out? There was some underlying talks about that with Jordan Hicks over the years. And now finally they did it. So if Palante ends up being in your bullpen and Zach Thompson ends up in your bullpen and maybe by the end of the year, Matthew Libertor is a guy that is there when rosters expand potentially in September. 
I believe that the Cardinals might still give consideration to those guys in your rotation going into next year. I just want them to have the best big league bullpen possible. And if that means moving some of these guys into the bullpen, and by the way, I think the future for Palante probably is in the bullpen. It's not a slide against him. He's really good there. I think the future for Zach Thompson might be in the bullpen. It's all right. Lefty with a crazy good curveball throws 95. It's a nice piece to have coming out of your bullpen on a every three or four nights type of a basis that can give you multiple innings. So, yeah, I, I think that's exactly the way that I would like those guys to be used. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind. Chris Kerber joins us next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario, that's Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Tanner Hendrickson joins us once again next show. I was going to say next week. I thought you tomorrow. were going to send it to the, the, the phone line. I'm like, now he's calling us? <laughs> no, he's not. He's not allowed to join us today. He's still on vacation. But right now, we are happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, is joining us here on the show. Kerbs, did you watch any of that game last night for the Cardinals with the near no-hitter from Miles Michaelis? I did not. I was listening to it. What, you didn't watch it. I listened to it. Does that count? Absolutely. That that works. I wanted to get your thoughts on that kind of a moment because you've been involved in history with the Blues. I think today's the three-year anniversary of the Blues with their parade. parade. So you've been around history with the Blues. That was nearly history for the Cardinals last night. Do you still get excited about no-hitters? Oh, dude. Uh, well, first, I when every single time I go to the baseball game, and I've been to three of them so far this year, they're like, okay, is this the day I get to see a no-hitter? And I've been close. I, I've been into the seventh inning once, and then the closest I've really been was back. This would have been, oh, we were Hershey, 96, 97. So we took a day off during the uh, the third round of the Calder Cup playoffs. And the, beat, uh, the, the two writers for the, the Springfield paper and myself, we went to Camden Yards, and we saw Mike Messina for the Baltimore Orioles. And he, he had a no-hitter through two outs in the ninth inning before a looper to left field. So that's the closest I've been. But, yeah, I, to me, the, uh, seeing a no-hitter has got to be one of the great things in sports to see because they're so rare to see live. But just from listening to it, guys, like I was excited for John Rooney and Ricky last night. Like I was so like – I had, I had it on my phone. I'm walking around the house with it. You know, I called uh, one of the kids up from downstairs and said, come on, we're going to listen to some history here. And so, yeah, I, I, was, I was definitely into it last night. Well, Curbs, we get some, I guess, the start of what could be some history in the NHL tonight. Uh, game one of the Stanley Cup final and the Tampa Bay Lightning looking to three-peat. We had this conversation earlier in the show, and I don't know your views on the definition of a dynasty, Curbs, but do you feel like Tampa Bay is in that category with the two Stanley Cups, or do you feel like to get in the dynasty category, they've got to win the third? No, listen, I... I think it's so hard to make the finals in, in just about every sport that even if you don't win, I think I think a trip to the final is what starts to qualify whether or not it's a potential dynasty. Now, I know, for example, and I know there's going to be plenty of people that argue with me, but four straight Super Bowls for the Buffalo Bills. Oh, I mean, curbs. Win one of them, curbs. Of Come them. on. <laughs> Come on. You got to get one. So, see, well, I know that's what I'm saying. At least you want to get one. But don't forget that the Tampa Bay Lightning, prior to this current run, under John Cooper, were in the Stanley Cup finals, right? But before. And, and they lost. So I, I think them getting back to the final is, yeah, definitely the beginning of, the, of, a, of what I would consider 
something you could qualify as a dynasty. If they win it, you absolutely talk about them doing it because it hasn't happened since the 80s. You know, and, and, and this type of thing is just so rare in all of sports, not just hockey. So it absolutely has to qualify. Curbs, who do you like in this series? Oh, boy, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. This, to me, almost is a bit of a coin flip because Tampa's got the experience, the it factor. They've got the defense and the goaltending. Colorado's got the depth. they got the high-end skill. But they're going to need the uh, – Colorado's going to need the Miko Rantanen. They're, they're going to need the JT Comfers, who gets, gets two goals in, in you know the last game against the Blues. They're going to need that depth to really come through for them. Otherwise, I think Tampa is, is favored in this one. Um, I think Colorado is a faster team, uh, you know, than, than Tampa is. So Tampa's going to have to grind it out down low, and we're just going to have to see if Tampa can grind it out down low, or do they happen to feed the transition game of the Avalanche? Having said all that, I, I think it's close to a coin flip because of the equalizer that Tampa has in it and Andre Vasilevsky. But make no mistake about it that I'm rooting for the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. Well, and you can hear that game actually here on 101 ESPN tonight. Uh, puck drop, 7 o'clock, 6.30 pregame. Curbs, uh, away from the Stanley Cup final, I wanted to get your, your head coaching thoughts on around the league because we heard yesterday Bruce Cassidy is going to be the head coach for the Vegas Golden Knights, and it sounds like John Tortorella is going to be with the Philadelphia Flyers. Are, are you surprised by those two signings? And I'm trying to, for a lack of a better word, are you a little disappointed that these guys continue to just get hired and rehired over maybe some new faces that should be getting hired? Yeah, I think, I think there's something to be said for that latter statement, Alex. Uh, I'm not surprised to see Cassidy get picked up right away. Like we've seen happen over the years with Bruce Boudreau and, and some other really good ones. Let's face it. That Boston firing was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Hello was a surprise to him because they've <laughs> apparently told him a couple weeks earlier that he was fine and safe. I think it does show you that I'm not sure that Vegas really had a plan. Like I, I still don't know the exact reasons and haven't been able to garner the exact reasons as to why Pete DeBoer was fired. They've shown a, a very, very uh, short leash and lack of patience when it comes to coaching. So it, it's very clear that the Las Vegas uh, management team does not value quality coaching because they've had it. I mean, look at hey, – Vegas missed the playoffs this year, and Gerard Gallant had the New York Rangers way ahead of a rebuild schedule in the third round of the playoffs, you know, and just and, and two wins away from a Stanley Cup, or one win, really, away from a Stanley Cup final. So um, I, I'm not surprised to see that one. I am a little surprised to see the, the John Tortorella one. And so I'm going to be re- – I'm curious to see whether it's John Tortorella saying, this is how I coach, this is how you have to respond to me, and this is how we play. Or as John Tortorella learned, because as we've even seen with Craig Berube here over the last few years, you have to adjust based on some of the team you have. And I think Berube's been excellent at it. I don't know, and I don't think we've seen that John Tortorella can do that. We know he's an excellent coach. We know he knows how to win. But can he coach and be successful with uh, today's player? And I, I just haven't quite seen it. I mean, we, we, we saw the exodus of players out of Columbus. And in my opinion, a lot of that was because of John Tortorella. So we'll see what happens there in Philadelphia, but uh, they are definitely bringing in a taskmaster. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, joining us here on 101 ESPN for just another couple of minutes. Kerbs, the big news earlier this week for one of the Blues' top prospects was Jake Neighbors and the Edmonton Oil Kings winning the WHL. They're going to be playing for the Memorial Cup up in Canada in the next week or so. 
Uh, what do you think the expectations are going into this offseason for Jake Neighbors? Realistic expectations, of course. Is he a guy that you think could legitimately compete for a spot in the top nine next year? Uh, if his expectations are absolutely not to make this team and and be in that top nine, then then his expectations aren't where they should be. Absolutely, that is where the expectations for Jake Neighbors should be. Uh, he was here. I, I really had the Blues known kind of what they were going to hit in terms of COVID and all this stuff. I think there's probably a chance Jack, Jake Neighbors would have stayed with this team this year. I think he was that close. But you had guys like James Neal and you had some veteran guys, you know, and, and it became a numbers thing. And you know what? It's turned out okay. The, Jake's been able to go down there. He's the captain of a winning team. He was the guy that got to skate over and pick up the WHL trophy. He's going to compete now in St. John, New Brunswick for the Memorial Cup. And that is a huge deal when it comes to young players, junior hockey. You you learn how to win. So it it turns out that it was 1,000% a terrific move for Jake Neighbors to go back to to junior hockey. Having said that, his time is now. And and I I think his expectations should be, whatever his workouts are, whether it be coming to here to St. Louis, whether it be going wherever Braden Shen is and living with the guy, whatever it takes, uh, I, I think Jake Neighbors absolutely heads into the offseason with the mindset, I have to do whatever I can because I intend on making that team. If that's his mindset, Curves, on the blue side of things, best case scenario for the team, do you think it is Jake Neighbors being a part of that top nine? Or do you feel like maybe it's going out there and finding another top nine forward to play with the Blues, even if they run it back with guys like David Perron, and Jake Neighbors starts on the fourth line this upcoming season and creates an identity with Torpchenko? I think I'm, I'm perfectly fine in that scenario uh, as well. I think he's got a game that can adapt, a game that can play uh, different levels. We've seen the way they brought Robert Thomas along. We've seen the way in the NHL under Craig Berube they brought Jordan Tyroo along. So I would expect, unless he really lights it up, uh, I, I still have high hopes that uh, David Perron is resigned. I think that really keeps your top nine set. If you do not make a move that takes one of those others out of your top nine, um, and, and I'm not so sure that that's the case. But uh, as it sits right now, I'm perfectly comfortable with Jake Neighbors coming in, playing in some minutes in the bottom nine, and then as the season moves along, as experience grows, you work him in with, with more minutes as a guy gets hurt or somebody else needs to be spelled for rest. Because, guys, again, and, and you've heard me say this a lot, and, and history bears this out. You have too many young kids in your top six, maybe your top nine, and you will be making mistakes that can cost you points that could potentially cost you playoff spots. And it's not because they're not good. I mean, it's even works with the great. It's, this has even happened with Connor McDavid. Okay. And, 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 and some of the top players that, that, that play in the game, it's just a learning curve. You know, look at a couple of the mistakes that Cairo had uh, was faced in these playoffs. And the only way you get the experience is to play, get that experience and learn from it. So to me, I think they got because I, I still consider this team in a championship window. Having watched these playoffs, I still believe they are right there. I don't think they're far off. And so I think you're still in that competitive window where you're not turning, you know, a whole bunch of key spots to young guys and going through growing pains. Curves, we only have about 30 seconds, but you said at the beginning there, you're not so sure that they'll have their top nine back. You want to expand on that? <laughs> well, I just I look at the salary cap situation and I, and, and I, I wonder if there's moves out there that allow them to show up their defense more. Because you have guys like neighbors, maybe Bull Duke, uh, maybe you know a more consistent play coming out of uh, a Kyrou Thomas, that kind of stuff. So I, 
I, I just think there's roster changes that, that are possible to improve this team. And All right, Curbs. BK thinks that the Blues are getting Matthew Kachuk and David Pasternak this offseason. That's not what I said. David Pasternak, Matthew Kachuk, and Jacob, Jacob Chikrin. Okay, on. sorry, sorry about Let's that. Let's be realistic here. <laughs> Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. All right, guys, I, I like your creative ca- uh, calculator there, BK. Hey, it works. I, I've done all the math. It works. It's all good. <laughs> He's just giving up prospects for all of them, Curbs. All right, guys. Take See it ya. easy. That's Chris Carver joining us here on 101 ESPN. He was done playing our too. game. BK and Ferrario Rewind is next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Checked out the 101 ESPN app yet? You should do so right now. It's loaded with a ton of awesome giveaways this month. And if you already have it, make sure to check out the rewards section. See all the great giveaways. If you don't have it yet, download it. Get registered today. You'll get a chance to win a $1,000 cash prize. There's a portable Traeger grill on there, a rolling Yeti cooler. I could use that. Signed Ryan O'Reilly jersey. So much more, including a solo stove. We just got ours a couple of weeks ago. It's fantastic. Basically, a smokeless or close to smokeless uh, bonfire that you can put in your backyard. All of those available right now over on the 101 ESPN app as we are taking part in app madness. Please help us beat 1057 the point. We couldn't do so in a home run derby, but you guys can do it for us. Why you gotta bring madness. that up, man? Why you to bring that up? Hopefully it's water under the bridge. I did hit the, hit the wall if you saw that or not. Alex, wrapping things up on the biggest story of the day, which was the near no-hitter for Miles Michaelis last night. We've talked a lot about that, and if anybody missed our open today, check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Let's talk a little bit about Miles Michaelis for a couple of minutes here to finish things off today. Because last year, I felt like the the Cardinals were really leaning on Wayno to give you those big starts. And then it was... Is anybody else going to be able to backfill behind him? Can they get you through six? I think for me, the biggest difference between this year's Cardinals team and last year's and why, I mean, there's a million of them, but why I have so much more confidence in this rotation specifically is because you might have three of those guys. Now, Michaelis leads the national league in innings pitched. You've got Wayno, who's been exactly what you expected him to be. And then starting tonight, you've got Jack back at the front of your rotation as well. Those three guys Give me confidence going into just about any series that you can match up head to head against whomever it is that they're throwing against. Absolutely. And I mean, Jack Flaherty is the known commodity, although some people still question if he's good, quote unquote. And Adam Wainwright's also the known commodity. Miles Michaelis is the interesting one. And I told you before the show today, Miles, to me, was the guy that at least from a lot of Cardinals fans that we've heard from. Nobody expected him to be good for this team. I think a lot of people expected Miles Michaelis post 2018 to just be, I don't know, Mike Leak caliber, maybe a little bit less, maybe like at best a fourth or a fifth in your rotation. I don't know if anybody expected a guy who's got a 2.62 ERA right now. A lot of people didn't view Miles Michaelis as to be somebody who was going to be as effective of a pitcher in your rotation. And now this was the. This was the as good as a trade conversation (laughs) brought up when you get a guy in a performance like this. This is something that 
last season, a lot of people were like, oh, bring back Lance Lynn because he's a bulldog or oh, you need to go out there and get a guy who gives you a lot of innings. Miles Michaelis is doing all of that for you. 82 innings. He's got a sub three ERA. He's giving you a chance to win every time out there. And he's giving you the nights to rest your bullpen. Yes, the no hitter helps, but he also has given you plenty of games where he's gone six, seven innings. This is the commodity that the Cardinals haven't had since 2018 when it comes to pitching. There are 30 National League starters that have thrown at least 50 innings so far, or 60 innings rather, so far this season. Among those 38, Miles Michaelis is seventh in ERA. Adam Wainwright is ninth. Dakota Hudson is 13th. You get a guy back tonight that could potentially work his way into the mix in the top 10 as well. You could have four starters in the National League that are in the top 15 in ERA this season. That's what makes you a legitimate contender if you've got that kind of depth into your rotation. We'll talk more about Jack's start tomorrow after we see what he's able to do tonight against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Cardinals going for the sweep. I'm sure there will be plenty more about that coming up from 2 to 6 on the fast lane. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.